This episode is supported by Dove. Over half of the girls around the world suffer from low self-esteem, which causes them to opt out of important life activities and puts their health at risk. The Dove Self-Esteem Project is the world's largest provider of self-esteem education and teaches the next generation to feel comfortable in their own skin by working with schools. Dove has created and uses educational evidence-based resources that are designed to help young girls and boys reach their full potential. They cover topics like bullying and social media to help young people build a positive relationship with the way they look. You can get these printable resources to help increase self-esteem in young people at dove.ca slash self-esteem. But Alex. Yeah, Shane. It's time to begin the episode. Let's do it. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex, and I'm here with my husband, Shane. The babies are in bed, the cat is in her room, and we are so glad that you could join us for happy hour on this Family Tree Podcast, episode 78. Uh, starting with our guests. So first up, we have Rob Shear. Rob Shear is a TED speaker. He's the founder of Comfort Cases Charity, the author of Forever Family, and one of the stars of Bryce Dallas Howard's film, Dads, which is a documentary on different dads. And him and his husband, Reese, have an adoptive family, and Rob's entire life story is one of the most fascinating stories you will ever hear. Now, the the movie is split into two parts. It has really famous dads like Will Smith, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon. Uh, who else? Conan. Conan. All the late night talk shows, <laughs> pretty much, and Will Smith. Uh, but then it, it goes into parts with regular dads. Uh, I shouldn't say regular dads because all of the people who aren't famous have remarkable, extraordinary stories. Mm. And Rob Shear, he is kind of famous now. I mean, he's been on <laughs> Ellen's couch, uh, but he had one of the more fascinating stories. We had to reach out to him, and we're so pleased that he agreed mm-hmm. to be on our show. Now, you're going to notice something that Rob, he doesn't really like talking very much. <laughs> 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 and of course, Alex knows that I'm saying that because he knows his story inside and out. This was one of the most different interviews we've ever conducted because there would be a 40-minute stretch where we didn't really say anything except react to his storytelling. But he is so great at speaking and he knows his story so well. I think without us asking questions, he was much better at informing mm-hmm. everyone about his story. Yeah, I, I love jumping in there you know, when we do our shows, when we do interviews, and I guess that's why we interview people. But with Rob, I was so happy to just kind of sit there and listen and take in everything he was saying. And it was a totally different experience for me. And I'm so grateful that he did that for us because it was it was fascinating. And honestly, if I had the chance to ask questions at some of those moments, I don't know what I could say because I was often left speechless. Yeah, I was just crying there. Yeah. Sitting there crying on Zoom, yeah. <laughs> trying to hide my whimpers. And then our next guest, Tess Brigham. A family therapist and a coach. So she is incredibly well-rounded and well-educated when it comes to helping families and kids within families deal with issues and arguments and resolutions. And this ended up being one of the most interesting free-flowing interviews we've mm-hmm. ever done. So it's like two completely different interviews (laughs) where it was like I thought I guess the Tess Brigham interview was going to be more like the Rob Shear one ended up being but it it flipped anyway very interesting cool episode and I'm excited for people to hear it yeah no I think you will take a lot from it and again just sit back and enjoy because you know I think these two interviews will definitely take you on a ride 
but <laughs> <laughs> you always have to outdo me no matter what i say alex needs the last word shane this was a wild episode this was the wildest <laughs> episode of all time so buckle up <laughs> put on your safety belt even your safety goggles and get ready for one hell of a ride oh i'd even throw on your life jacket for this yeah, one but shane cheers cheers to tess brigham Thus, Brigham, Rob Shear, so love. We are drinking Seedlip Spice 94 and Maple Coke, which you told me a little oh. while ago was one of your favorites. So It's one of the best mixers. Secretly one of the best. And the reason it's a secret is because I don't know if you can find Maple Coke everywhere. I know. I don't know. I, I got it. Like, I bought a few packs at the grocery store that one time, but I got to see if I can get my hands on more. But yeah, makes you feel good. And I was feeling good earlier in the week. And I wanted to ask you something because this is something common with me. When I am feeling really good, I get worried because I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I feel like when times are really good, something is looming around the corner. Now, I know you have a different, more positive, cheery outlook than me. I'm curious, does this happen to you or do you just ride the good times and don't expect the bad to come? Well, in life, you can't have the good without the bad. And Skip the speech. And no, this is, this is part mean... of my outlook. Let me get to sorry. it. I'm sorry. So, I'm because the thing is, the bad is always going to come. So when you are experiencing the good, you have to allow yourself to experience it fully and completely lose yourself in the good so that you have something to hang on to when the bad inevitably happens. Mm-hmm. And if you don't allow yourself to take advantage of the good parts and totally let yourself soak in those happy days and those happy moments, then what is the point of everything? Just to always be living in fear for the bad things that are bound to happen, bound to happen always. But what I mean is, do you get a sinking feeling when things are really good? Ever? No, no, because I'm. that's a skill that I have is to allow myself to just like fully immerse myself in the good. Now, I know that it's not going to last, but I don't allow myself to get the sinking feeling. And I think I don't get that just because I know. Do you think it's common for people when times are really good to just have like a a dread? Like, uh oh, okay. Yeah, a lot of of people I know are like that. A lot of my friends are. So I was having a really great time up at the cottage. Things were peaking, I would say. Like it was like good day, good day. And then I just felt so relaxed and clear headed. And then I had this moment where... My stomach sunk and I got like a lump in my throat and I was thinking something bad's going to happen. And then sure enough, I got a message and it was just something stupid. I don't even want to talk about it because it'll make me mad. And that was kind of like the first blow. And then I get, my sister tells me, my mom got test results back. She's like, oh, they're not good. They're not good. Mom won't tell us what it is. And I'm like, mom's exaggerating because my mom's a hypochondriac. So I'm like, don't worry. It's it's going to be one of those things where it's bad but manageable and it's she's going to be fine. But what happened was, but what happened was my mom revealed to my sister and I in a, a three-way call that uh, she has lung cancer. And it's, a, and it's an aggressive form of lung cancer, which it... It totally lived up to that sinking feeling I was having when times were so good. Yeah, and I think that when it comes to health and when it comes to the mortality of your loved ones and your family members, there is no more sinking feeling than that. That is that's mm-hmm. the pit of it. Yeah. That is the bottom of it. And it kind of it puts everything else into perspective. And Yeah, it really made everything else feel so inconsequential. And the thing 
that I was so worked up about, it just seemed like didn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. And as it feel like I can, any problem now doesn't even matter. Well, I, I feel like every other problem or every other obstacle or whatever it is, it feels so approachable because it doesn't have to do with life and death. It doesn't have to do with a family member going through something really, really hard. And it makes you, it makes me want to, you know, come to terms with any other issues there are, solve them so we can just kind of focus on this and focus on what other issues. Well, no, I like any other issues that come up and just like focus on them, get them out of the way so that we can. Sorry, but what I'm saying is the other issues don't even matter anymore mm-hmm. to me. It's like nothing matters. I, I'm not like, no, I need to wrap up these loose ends so I can focus on my yeah. mom. I don't even care about anything else except for my mom right now. And so your mom, your mom starts chemo in about 10 days. Yeah. She said she starts in about 10 days and she's handling it well. She seems to be worried. I think she's probably in a state of shock, but she's just worried about how we'd react. And afterwards, I didn't know how to feel. I was in a strange state and I just wanted to film a TikTok. And it sounds weird, but I felt like I could do it. So we shot a TikTok right (laughs) afterwards. And then I went for a walk and I kind of broke down a little bit. And then and then I came back and you and I went out. Uh, we're at the cottage, so I went out on the ice when we watched the sunset. And something about that just made me cry, you know. But it's so strange. It comes in waves. I'll be fine. And then I'll just get this wave of the reality of it all. But the biggest wave came when we were putting Betty and Lucy to bed, when we were giving them a bath tonight. Mm-hmm. And very rarely... Yeah, I don't think I ever remember the time when Betty and Lucy were in the bath together. They've only they've only taken a bath together twice. There's just this huge wave hit me of sadness just because bath time for me is so closely associated with moms and my mom and all the pictures when I was a baby, like when I was Betty's age, it's me and my sister in the tub together. And for some reason, just that hit me so hard because it's such like a like a mom thing to do you know Mm -hmm. and although i just found out my mom has cancer and that she told me it's it's not curable it feels like i'm warning her i'm already referring to her past tense and it just started a montage of all the memories of my mom you know that i i had from a child till now i spent a lot of the day after finding out trying to get on hold with our pharmacies and our doctors um about when you and i could get vaccinated so that we could see your mom help out, do something. And it's so frustrating because there's no information. My doctor had no information about anything. And I told her the circumstances. I said, not only am I immunocompromised, but this is a situation we're in as of today with Shane's mother, who we haven't seen in a year. And... They had nothing to say. They couldn't tell me anything about the vaccine. They didn't know when they were going to get it. They didn't know when we could get vaccinated. And obviously this coming time will be difficult. But I want to I want to be able to be there for your mom, for Brad, for you in any way that I can. And I get, I'm nervous because I, I want to do that right. And I want to make sure that you feel fulfilled. Do you know what I mean? No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I like that idea, though, being fulfilled. Like, well, I, how are you going to fulfill me? Well, if it wasn't COVID, I would 
hope that that would be spending a lot of time at your mom's house or having them at ours, whatever. But the situation is so different. So I'm trying to figure out ways that we can have everybody feeling good and feeling fulfilled and feeling loving and warm and close. Probably more a back rub at nighttime <laughs> would help me out personally. Uh, it, that would fulfill me. You had the plan to bring meals to my... Mm-hmm. That can, sounds like a very sweet you, plan. I can give you back rubs. Back rubs are good. Those kind of stopped for a bit. There was a period where <laughs> you were scratching my back for a decent period every night, and I really liked it, and then it stopped for a, a, over a year. Well, has have you not gotten one every night at the cottage? Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I'm sad that your mom has cancer. And I don't want her to hurt. And I don't want you to hurt. And I've never dealt... I have both of my parents, as do you. And I haven't dealt with, you know, a serious sickness of one of my parents before. And this is the first time. It's been mother-in-law. And you're the only person in the world to me. And to know what you're going through right now and to see what you're going through i wish i could know what to say i wish i could know what to do because i just i really want to help ease your pain and i i just hate seeing you uh suffering a weird memory i have is uh (laughs) i used to like doing this when i was a kid i could still buy cigarettes for my mom (laughs) they would give the cigarettes that probably gave her the cancer (laughs) No, it's not funny, but my mom would give me a $20 bill and I could go to Max with a note and they would give me DeMaurier reds. I think they were called. The package was red at least. And then give me the change and I could buy. Usually I was allowed to buy some like petty candy or penny candy, whatever it's called with the change. Only like the loose change, not any bill change. And then I'd bring the cigarettes back to my mom and I'd eat candy. And it was just, it was, <laughs> it was just so much fun. And I felt so cool to be able to do that. Just picturing a little kid uh, buying cigarettes is is funny. It's like out of Leave It to Beaver. Not Leave It to Beaver. Did people smoke in that show? You know what I mean. It feels like it's just out of that time. It's Queen's considered. Gambit. Maybe Queen's Gambit. Didn't she go and get like pills yeah. for her mom? Yes. But yeah, it goes to show how old I am. Because <laughs> like that, when you were a kid, I don't God, think you were no. allowed to buy cigarettes. No way. No, I don't know a time. See, I think that ages you more... Than your actual age, because mm. even in your time, kids were not allowed to buy cigarettes. <laughs> I don't know what kind of convenience store this was. Did you ever buy your dad or mom like a, I don't know, dime bag or anything? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they don't care. No, the of dealers. course not. Um, okay, next topic. Talking nights I wanted to talk about. Now, we did a podcast where we talked about talking mm-hmm. on a date night and how you thought it was going to be this once in a blue moon thing we did because we had this magical date night where we tossed our games aside and we just talked all night because originally we thought, hey, we're going to make date nights not a movie night. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a game night and we're going to play Jenga, Connect Four, Scrabble, you name it. We bought every game in the book. But lately, we've just been talking after yeah. that one talking night we must have had three or four consecutive date nights where we didn't touch a game we didn't look at the tv we didn't touch our phones we just talked now what do you think of that because you were such a skeptic you were like "Eh, (laughs) the stars will just align and we'll we'll have these 
talking date nights once in a blue moon. Well, and we haven't even needed to pull topics out of a hat. But what I really loved about our last one, and we did it up here up north, we took turns DJing for each other. So we do three songs at a time and we just kind of talk while our songs were Well, that was a forced talk night because... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a power outage. So we had, that was so much fun. So I was going to bring up, actually, what do you think about pretend power outages? Because <laughs> during the real power outage, we had candles lit. We had our, our little battery-powered uh, charger. <laughs> Thank goodness we had it. We have this charger that you charge, and it gives you about eight hours of battery life to charge things. And we basically just had our phones and candles and some flashlights and played music we each got to play three songs each Mm -hmm. and it was just so much fun it was so much fun and nerve-wracking in a way because you're excited and nervous if the person's gonna like the song and (laughs) it it almost ruined the conversation because (laughs) at first we weren't doing that we were just talking and having a great time but then there was a lot of pressure to come up with good songs so it would be like if you talked i'm like shh shh just listen well the song choices ended up being really good so i feel like we both wanted to keep doing our last three choices but i just picked one band like Shane did an entire modest mouse set list an entire thing for like two hours i switched it up i think i tried to get a different band in every time but you were entirely modest mouse and i enjoyed it were you impressed that modest mouse has so many great songs or were you faking it no 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 very impressed i Here's the thing. I, what I was even more impressed with was just that they had so many songs. Yeah. Like, they are prolific artists. Did you think they were hits, though? Yeah, absolutely. No, I had a great time, and I, I thought you made... It was a bold move sticking to one band, but I liked it. I enjoyed it. And I wouldn't be mad if you did that again. So the question is, would you ever do a forced power outage, and would it be the same? would not be the same because nothing replicates that energy it was like whoa is the power gonna come back on like we couldn't even flush the toilets babe although i do love uh what we did and i do think we should have more djing nights but you don't think hey let's shut out all, all the lights and just use candles yes i say let's definitely do that but we don't pretend it's a power outage because it won't have the same vibe but if we just do like <laughs> if we just call it like what like yeah, I'm not saying we actually pretend <laughs> it's a power outage and be <laughs> That's like. That's what you meant. We, we're, we're always like, darn, I wish the TV would turn on. No, Dingus. I want more candles in our life. It's been super lovely being at the cottage and having so many candles at our disposal. All of ours at home are burnt out from Christmas. Um, okay, my next question. This isn't a good one, but it's are you having fun? <laughs> <laughs> like right now in life, are you having fun? Two days ago, or was it yesterday? I can't even tell anymore. Yesterday was the best day that I had had in ages. Yesterday was the best day you yes. had? Well, up to... Up oh, to, yeah. But it was the best day that I was having in ages, and I honestly felt so happy. Like I felt like I was walking on a cloud, just in a way that I haven't felt in so long. And I felt so alive. I felt so young. I felt so good. And so confident. So yes, in general, in life, I'm having a great time. I mean, my happy day came shattering down today uh, and you're learning about your mom. In general, in life, having a good time, it's hard for me to actually get the reality of what is happening because it just feels like it's not actually happening, like mm-hmm. the bad stuff, you know? Yeah, I'm like devastated, but also everything feels lighter because nothing matters as much. 
-hmm. so I'm I'm I have less anxiety through my devastation. Mm -hmm. What do you think happens when, like, do we ever see our parents again after they died? Do we, like, you're religious? That's why I'm asking. You're, mm -hmm. what's like, what is? Well, do we meet them again? The Catholic view of afterlife is that you know you do meet again in the afterlife. The Catholics believe in a heaven and a hell. So okay. like, if what's you're good or bad, like, though, is it fun up there? Like, yeah. A, Heaven's supposed to be like... Are you like, playing games? Are you... I don't know. I think heaven is just whatever you think heaven's going to be, but it's just a place they where They don't define it? No, it's just a place where there's no pain, only love, only happiness, things like that. It's just, you know... And nothing ever goes bad up there. No, nothing. So Did you know the devil was actually an angel? Well, why do you... What do you do? He, he chose to stand up to God and he tried to like overthrow God. And That's then, an option up there? Well, no, because then he was banished to hell. Oh, and then everyone else is like, <laughs> don't try that. Yeah, he was, he was, I believe he was the, like, God's right-hand man. I think he was, like, mm -hmm. the number one angel. Yeah. And hell is the opposite, right? It's just constant pain. Yes. And if you, so my favorite version of hell, because there's so many different versions of hell, it's got to be the pitchfork version, right? Where they're no, poking you in the, the butt. The, the, my favorite one is Dante's Inferno version. Do you mm. know that one at all? So it's, it's nine circles of hell, and each circle is for a different type of sinner. And then the very bottom one, like in the bowels of hell, that's where the devil actually is. But it's not hot. It's freezing cold, and he's stuck in ice. And he just keeps flapping his wings to try to get out. But the more he flaps his wings, the colder he makes it. So he just traps himself in further. And all these people are just like half trapped in ice and everything like that for all of eternity. And it's really awful. So the devil's even trapped there. Yes. So the devil doesn't even like being in hell. Well, in that version. Oh, there's a version where the devil's happy, though. I don't know. There's like millions of versions, Shane. But here's the thing. Nobody knows what happens in the afterlife people have different beliefs people have different hopes for it i like to believe because it does give me more hope it gives me more to hang on to that we do see the people we love in the afterlife because i want to see my babcha again i feel like i can feel her presence certain mm -hmm. times in my life and i feel like that's there's got to be something to that and i want to hold on to that whether it's true or not i I want to hold on to that. And in your mind, does Bobsha look like Bobsha from when she, right before she died? Or does she look like young Bobsha? Or is she like baby Bobsha? <laughs> <laughs> baby Bobsha would be weird. Why would she be baby Bobsha? Maybe teenage Bobsha would be as young I don't as want her. to take care of a baby Bobsha. She'd be speaking Polish. I couldn't understand her. Um, yeah, okay. So let's say the options are teenage Bobsha to the Bobsha right before she passed. What would be the Bobsha you think you would meet? Old Bobcha, I guess. Old Bobcha, yeah. Or I'm, maybe just Bobcha at her happiest time in her life. Yeah, so maybe you see her as old Bobcha, but maybe when she looks in the mirror, if there are mirrors up mm. there, then she looks like 25-year-old Bobcha. And like maybe my dad would see her as, you know, like 40-year-old Bobcha when he was a kid and mm -hmm. she was giving him baths kind of thing. Yeah. So I think it's honestly, and like I hope and I don't know, but it, that would be beautiful. Okay, so should we go to go share? to our sponsors? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to our interviews and our sponsors, yeah. Okay, so we're about to talk to Rob Shear, but before we do that, let's tell everyone who we are supported by. 
We are supported by the Miku Smart Baby Monitor, the most accurate sleep and breathing monitor ever, and the best monitor Shane and I have ever used. And we've gone through so many. Oh, we got a pile of them in the backyard. <laughs> what I love about the Miku Smart Monitor is that there's no physical contact since they use sensor fusion technology. Typically, smart monitors need something that attaches to your baby, whether it's like a little shoe or something that goes around their waistband or on their sleep suit. And it works with your smart smartphone to alert you of changes to your baby's vitals and nursery conditions. Sweet. Some put a little shoe on them? Yeah. <laughs> I want to see that. I almost want that just to see it, but continue. Yeah, no, it's weird. And I love that Miku doesn't need any of those pieces to accurately check on your baby's breathing. They also have crypto security, which means, Shane... No hacker is going to be looking at your baby. Right? That is such a fear, and that is something that can actually happen. If they catch a hacker looking at a baby, I say life in prison. <laughs> yeah, I'd hope. But yeah, crypto security, no hacking. This is an incredibly safe monitor to have in your home. Plus, the HD video and photo are amazing. There's great night vision, and there's a big selection of sounds and lullabies, and of course, two-way talk. If you want to check out the Miku Smart Baby Monitor, go to MikuCare.com and use the code FAMILYTREE20 for $79 off. Say it again. It's MikuCare.com and promo code FAMILYTREE20 for $79 off. This deal is available in the U.S. only. And remember, no other monitor is a Miku. I won't forget that, but we are also supported by... Hello Bello. Being a parent is hard. Like, really hard. So when you go to get diapers to prevent the next eventual blowout, finding a diaper that's absorbent and soft without spending a fortune shouldn't be just as tough. But you know all this talk about functionality, people forget about style. Lucy doesn't because she is obsessed with her Hello Bello diapers. And what is awesome for her is that you can choose from over 20 different fun rotating designs throughout the year. But they stop rotating when the baby's wearing them, right? Yes, I don't even know how that would work. But each bundle comes with seven packs of diapers, four packs of plant-based wipes, and even one full-sized product freebie with your first order. Plus, 15% off of any add-ons like the bubble bath, the wipes, a diaper rash cream, detangler, whatever it is. Hello Bella was co-founded by Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard and built on the simple idea that all babies deserve the best, which is why they offer premium baby products at affordable prices. And all the products are tops for their bottoms. So to get Hello Bello super soft, super absorbent, and super affordable diapers delivered right to your door, go to hellobello.ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree30 for 30% off your diaper bundle order. That's huge bang for your buck and a lot of potential blowout saved. In case you missed it, that's hellobello.ca, promo code thisfamilytree30 to start bundling with 30% off your first order. Don't forget, it's hellobello.ca, promo code thisfamilytree30. 30. This promo code is applicable to Canadians only. But now let's get to our interview with Rob Shear. Well, hello, my friends. Hey. Hi. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today. We have been so looking forward to our conversation with you. We recently watched uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's Dads, and obviously we're so inspired by your story. 
And I was just curious, before we get into everything, how, how did you get involved with that film? How crazy. First of all, yes. thank you both so much for having me on. You know, I absolutely want to first say I love Canada. <laughs> and let me tell you real quick, I'm going to tell you a quick story about how much I love Canada. My husband and I and my family did a show about a year and a half ago called Vacations of the Brave. And they brought us to Alberta, Canada. And um, it was first time I'd ever been. And I was so impressed. We were 10 days filming that I actually got a maple leaf tattooed on my arm really and wow. they actually filmed it during the show so love canada i want to consider my second home but um how did we get involved with bryce howard i mean that was crazy understanding i mean i'm just a goat farmer from darnstown maryland <laughs> trying to raise my five kids and you know be the best husband i can be and and you know truly be a leader within our community because i truly believe that each and every one of us are leaders mm -hmm. and and we were actually on vacation and I got an email um, asking if I would have a call with a producer who's looking to do a show and they think that our family would be a fit. And I was like, you know, and I get these quite often. And I, I said to my husband, I said, you know what, I'm going to reply back and say, yeah, let's talk to him. So we did. And they said, um, is it possible that you could have a call with us the next day? And I'm thinking, I'm like, we're, you know, we're at the beach, we're on vacation. I was like, you know, I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, as long as it's not going to be a long call. So all of a sudden we zoom in and there's Bryce Howard. Whoa. <laughs> mind you, my boys, myself, my daughter, you know, big Jurassic Park fans. Yeah. We loved everything she's been in. We knew exactly who she was when she was on it. And I was just like, wow. And so she um, she told us about this concept that she wanted to do and that there were thousands of families. I mean, mm -hmm. so she was, they were like, listen, we don't really know if um, you're gonna be the pick, but we'd like to send a camera crew, follow you around, do some filming. So they did that. And then they kept um, cutting families and cutting families and cutting families. And they did the entire show. And after they did the entire show, they still were cutting people out of the show. And I was just like, and then all of a sudden Bryce reached out to us and was like, you know, there was no way that we could not tell your story. And she was like, and actually the reason we told your story last is because we were so concerned that if we told your story in the beginning, people wouldn't listen to the rest because right. they would be too crying. And so, yeah, so that's how we got connected with Bryce Howard. And she is amazing. And she is as nice as can be. I still, we've become friends and she's amazing. So do you tell people now that you co-starred in a movie with Will Smith? <laughs> it only depends on who I want to impress. <laughs> Normally that's only my children. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, Will Smith was in it and, you know, so many other great, you know, Neil Patrick Harris. And, you know, at the end, for me, it was the amazing dads, the yeah. everyday dads that were in that documentary that really made the documentary shine. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I've been very lucky. I mean, throughout this journey, as I always put it, I've been able to meet some amazing people. I've sat on the couch with Ellen DeGeneres. I've, you know, done everything from the Today Show to Lester Holt, even to be picked as a CNN hero. But to meet everyday people like me, that, you know, we're, we're just everyday people. I mean, when we get stopped in the mall or at a restaurant prior to the pandemic, mind you, and people would recognize my family or something, I always laugh because it's just like, you know, you do know that we live on a farm. And, you know, this morning I actually, you know, fed the chickens, fed our pig and our goats and <laughs> just an everyday guy who realized what was important in life. Mm -hmm. You know, for those who know my story, and I've told my story 
so many times. I'm one of thousands and thousands of people all over the world, not just in my country, all over the world who have similar stories like mine. Mm -hmm. You know, as a boy growing up, uh, I was the youngest of 10 kids. My mother had been married six times. We lived in and out of every shelter in Maryland, Virginia, and DC. I never remember picture hung on the wall. I never remember my mother looking at me and saying, I love you. Mm -hmm. And I definitely knew that the monster who lived in our house, which was my father, was never going to ever be the dad that I wanted. You know, as a young boy, I remember being about six years old, living in one of the houses that we lived in. You know, we would always be moving out in the middle of the night or, you know, from not paying rent. And I was sitting in the front yard and I looked across the street and there was a dad in the front yard throwing a ball with his son. And I remember at that very young age, looking at them and knowing that I would never, ever have that dad. Mm -hmm. And I was never going to be that boy. Mm -hmm. But when I grew up, I wanted to be that dad and I wanted to have that son or that daughter. Mm -hmm. And I just knew that even as a young age, but life in my family was hard. I mean, any given night, you know, the jokes in my family would be my, my parents would line us up on our knees and they would hold a cold gun to our head and they would click the gun and and my father would look at my mother and say you know francis i wonder which one's gonna pee on themselves first and you know she would you know bellow her cigarette smoke out and laugh and and that was typical or wait how how i am just i'm just so curious because this is so um this is it is so shocking Right. And for listeners that are hearing this, this is going to be so shocking because we do have a lot of parent listeners. And when you talk about your parents lining you up on the ground and putting a gun to your head and seeing what kind of reactions you were going to have as children, what what was the situation at home that allowed them to do this, to think this was OK? Like we're. They they were addicts, I think. Well, b both my mother and my father both had alcohol problems. You know, you have to understand back in the late 60s, early 70s, I mean, addiction was something that we didn't talk about like we talk about now. Back when I was a kid growing up, if you saw a child with a bruise on that, you kept your mouth shut mm -hmm. because, you know, what happened in someone's home was in someone's home. It's, it's very different than it is now. And, you know, I used to always say that my parents were a product of their environment, okay, that they came came from dysfunction, that they were dysfunctional. But I'm here to tell you, my friends, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. My parents were the product of a choice, of a choice, a choice that each and every one of us can make at one time. Whether it's the fact we choose to get help with our mental illness, whether it's the fact that we choose to get help when we are addicted to drugs or alcohol, whether the fact that we choose to reach out when we cannot take 10 kids. My parents were a product of a choice. And my father, he was a monster. You know, I remember vividly that he would sit in this old recliner and all of a sudden he would yell out one of our names and we would look at each other and we would pray that it wasn't going to be our name. And sure enough, he would call my name, Robert Terry. And I knew what to do. You were trained as a young kid what to do. You ran to that refrigerator as fast as you could. You grabbed the Paps Blue Ribbon out and you ran back to the chair to get it to him. Mind you, no matter how fast I ran, no matter how quick I was, I knew what was going to happen. I'm 54 years old and every morning I'm reminded 
Every morning when I get in the shower, as I look down at my leg, and I see the scar from the cigarette that he would put out on me, I'm reminded. See, that was my life. That was my brother's and sister's life. That was our family. See, to us, that was the way families were supposed to be. That was the way families were supposed to treat each other. The abuse, the neglect, the psychological damage. It was harder than people can imagine. But then I turned 12, 12 years old. I'll never forget it. My parents died. Both my mom and dad passed away. Within months apart, my parents died. And I went into what we call here in our country, the foster care system. You know, I'd already heard about that system. Some of my brothers and sisters had already fallen into it. The statistics show us that the 438,000 children that we have in our foster care system in the United States, the statistics show that only 54% of them graduate from high school, mm -hmm. that only 11% apply to college, and only 3% get a college education. We know that 30,000 children will age out of a shattered system, and 70% of them are going to be homeless within two years. Homeless. We also know that the records show us that 64% of all inmates in our prisons from East Coast to West Coast were in foster care. Mm -hmm. See, wow. my brothers and sisters had already fallen on those waysides. Teenage pregnancy, drug addiction, behind bars. And I was 12 and I walked up to the driveway of my very first home with my trash bag. I remember walking into that house. I remember the lady in the house going through all of the stuff and saying to her husband, he doesn't even have any decent clothes to wear to church tomorrow and he really needs to shower. As if I wasn't there, as if I was already invisible and disposable because that's what you as a community had already shown me when you handed me the trash bag. I couldn't believe it, but down the hall I walked. She put me into the bathroom, shut the door behind me, and for the first time, for the first time, I looked in that tub and saw a bar of soap laying on the tub. And at that moment, I realized that my life had changed. Mm -hmm. At that moment, I realized I was never gonna see my mother. I was never gonna see my father. I knew that even though how bad it was, I wanted them. Mm -hmm. I ached for them because that was my family. And now, you all expect me to get in the shower, grab this bar of soap, lather up my body, and what were their middle names? What were their favorite colors? They were strangers. Mm -hmm. See, we do that every single day when we put kids in a system because of a choice that someone else made. Understand, I didn't choose to go into foster care. Mm -hmm. I went into foster care because of choices other people made, just like what happens every single day. But I also decided at that moment that I was going to be that kid. I was gonna be that kid that you wanted. I was gonna be ki that kid that you loved. Before my foster parents would get up, I would already wake up and do the dishes and you never had to ask me to vacuum because I'd vacuum way before you ever wanted me to. I'd always make sure to take care of their biological kids because the only thing I ever wanted was for them to look at me and say, we love you. Mm -hmm. And we're proud of you. The next thing you know, I'm 18, a senior in high school, 1984. My gosh, my friends, I made it. Mm -hmm. See, kids like me weren't supposed to make it to their senior year. Kids like me were not supposed to have the grades that I had and the drive that I had. 
Kids like me, you all didn't talk about, but I made it. Fall, 1984, I came home from school. Two weeks after my 18th birthday, there sitting was my trash bag. My trash bag. You know, I'd lived with this family for years. I actually had started calling them mom and dad. I thought their kids were my siblings. This was my forever family. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. Until my foster father looked at me and told me that I could no longer live there because the check was no longer going to come. The check. The check that I really didn't really know much about. They were being paid to do this? Being paid to make me feel that they loved me? I looked at my mom as a tear rolled down her eye and she says, there's nothing I can do. You gotta go. And I grabbed my trash bag and I left. That night, it was the scariest thing I'd ever experienced since my parents had died. Where was I gonna go? What was I gonna do? You know, I knew that if I continued to go to school and I educated my mind, I could educate my future. Mm -hmm. That's what I did. I hid my trash bag behind the bushes at school and I walked into school. I went to school every single day, every day, because at school, they fed me. I would wait till all the kids left the cafeteria and I would dig into the trash and I would gather as much food as I could because I didn't know if I'd eat that night or that weekend. And even though I had a $3.35 an hour job because that's what minimum wage was back then, working at a local take taco place, it still wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. The owner of the taco place found out that I was homeless and he would make the managers leave the outside bathroom door unlocked for me. And that's what I would sleep at night. When I wasn't at my taco place, I was sitting in the public library, my safe place, the place that always welcomed me and kept the door open. I would sit there and I would read every book I got my hands on. Because again, I knew that if I educated my mind, I would educate my future. I also knew that if I fell within those pages of the book, I could forget all the pain that was around me. May, 1985, I had made it. I was a scrawny, skinny, dirty kid. Couldn't tell you the last time I had had a haircut. And God knows I didn't own a toothbrush. And by the way, my pearly whites that I have and my teeth are so beautiful. <laughs> they actually cost me an arm and a leg because nobody bothered to stop to give me a toothbrush. See, as I said in Mrs. Brown's English class, and the guidance counselor would come in and pull the other kids out, wanting to know what their future was. No one asked me. So you have to understand something. If you would have asked me about my future, then you would have to acknowledge you failed me. So you didn't acknowledge me. Graduation day, gosh. I can't believe it. I'm here. I'm standing in a cap and gown like all the other kids. Auditorium is full. They start calling names, one name after the next. Parents are clapping and screaming and yelling. And then they call my name. Exactly. Silence. No one clapped. No one cheered. No one cared. See? I was right. My community, I was invisible and I was disposable. And I walked off the stage. I did not go back to my seat in the auditorium. And I left that auditorium. I walked in the back parking lot and I sat down on the curb. And for the first time that I can remember, I truly cried. 
I cried for my mom and dad that I miss so much. I wanted to feel that cigarette on my leg. I wanted my mom and my dad. I cried for my foster parents who had given up on me just because of a check. And then I cried for all of you, my community, the ones who felt that I wasn't worth it, that I didn't deserve what all the other kids were getting. You know, I stayed homeless for a couple of weeks until I finally realized that I had to do something. That something was break the law and go to jail or two, join the military. And that's what I chose to do. I joined the United States Navy. I will tell you, I did not join the Navy because I wanted to protect anybody. <laughs> I joined the Navy because I was hungry. Mm. I was cold. And I just wanted to belong. I hitchhiked down Route 32 to a place called Fort Meade, Maryland, where I knew that there was a military base. I walked up to the gate. I asked, told to the front guard, I want to join the Navy. And he looked at me and said, son, doesn't work like that. <laughs> he says, you have to find a recruiter. You got to take an ASVAB test. And he's like, and then you better hope that the Navy wants you. Wow. No one's ever wanted me, but I was going to do it. And I did. Found a recruiter, took an ASVAB test, took a couple weeks. And finally, I sworn in to the United States Navy I'll never forget going back to the base at Fort Meade, Maryland, and they gave me a key to the Red Roof Inn. Oh, this was a hotel. I had not been at a hotel. And it was an actual key that you put in the door. And I was going to spend a night in a hotel before I flew to Great Lakes, Illinois to boot camp. I put that key in that door. I opened it up and I walked into that room and I shut the door behind me and I dropped my trash bag. My trash bag. The trash bag that you gave me to define me, the trash bag that you gave me that you expected my whole life to be a part of, the trash bag that tried to absolutely swallow my life, I finally dropped it. I went in the bathroom, turned on the shower, and I got in the shower, and I opened up a brand new bar of soap. I lathered my body like you wouldn't believe. I scrubbed and scrubbed, which felt like for hours, See, I had to scrub all the dirt off me that you could see. But then I tried to scrub all the dirt that I felt was inside of me. A new person. That's what I wanted to be. And so when I got out of the shower, I looked in the mirror and I said, Robert, from this day forward, you will never be called Robert again. You'll be called Rob. You'll never speak about your past. And you will know that your past is where it should be in the past. And I walked out of that hotel room the next morning without my trash bag. Just me. Crossed the street, got on the bus, was taken to the airport, and I flew to Great Lakes, Illinois, where I was sworn in again in the United States Navy. And let me tell you something, I excelled. I excelled more than anybody could have imagined. I then became a very successful businessman, and I never looked back. See, the fact is, is that I would only tell a few people about my, my past when I would sit and hobnob with senators and congressmen and CEOs of companies. People would say to me, Let's, what about your past? And I would say, come on, guys, you know what the past is? The past is your past. Let's talk about my future. <laughs> you know, I got a job at a bank and I climbed that corporate ladder because I had been totally wrong about my community. My community had taught me something. The most important three things. 
Number one, buy a big house. Let me tell you something. I bought a huge house in DC because every time you walked by it, I wanted you to stop. I wanted you to look at it. I wanted you to say, whoever lives in that house is really successful. Mm -hmm. Number two, buy a really expensive car. I didn't buy one, I bought two because I wanted to pull up to a stop sign and I wanted you to look at me and I wanted you to say, who's ever behind that wheel, they are successful. And then I made enough money to take you all to Disney World because that's what my community taught me. Me, me, me. And then I met him, Reese, 16 years ago. Walked into my life like I never would have expected. He is the foundation of the man I am today. He was the one who loved me. Even when he found out about all my bruises, he was highly educated. And let's not forget, I don't even know the difference between there, there, and there. He's got his masters. He grew up with a family that's been married for over 50 some years in the Midwest. And he fell in love with me. And he wanted to be a dad, just like me. Wow, four years into our relationship. And by the way, for all of you people that are listening and watching this and you think gay people move in immediately, we did not. We did the courtship for two years. We moved and lived together for two years. And then it was decided we were gonna have a kid. Mind you, I wanted to have a child overseas. I wanted to adopt a baby. And one Saturday morning, as my husband and I were sitting, watching some news show, drinking coffee, probably suffering from a hangover from a cocktail party the night before, Wednesday's Child came on. See, Wednesday's Child is a show here in the States about children who actually are in foster care and that are looking for a forever family. Reese looked at me and said, can you explain to me why we're not adopting in foster care? And I said, I told you we will never talk about that. He said, you know, Rob, Maybe that's one of the problems. You refuse to talk about it. You refuse to let people know who you truly are, where you truly came from. I know they will love you. I said, really? I said, Reese, if people knew that I was the kid that you walked by and was eating out of a trash can, would you really break bread with me? If people knew that I was uneducated, would they really want to be within my circle? And he said, if they didn't, then why would you need them? Damn it, he's so smart. <laughs> you know, he said, let's go talk to somebody about adopting a kid from foster care. I said, okay. And so on that Monday, that's what we did. We went to DC Child and Family Services and we said we to the lady at the front, we want to adopt. And she said, sure, honey, you want to adopt a baby, don't you? And I said, of course we want to adopt a baby. She says, yes, yeah, so does everybody else. She says, it's two-year waiting list. I said, two years? I said, there's so many kids in foster care I've read. She said, yeah. She said, but you know what? It's not as easy to get a baby. She said, why don't you guys decide to be foster parents and do foster to adopt? And I looked at Reese and said, are you crazy? I was like, I'm not going to let some kid come into my house and all of a sudden I fall in love with it and they're going to yank it back and give it to its birth parents. And Reese looked at me and he said, Rob, if we can change a child's life for just one day, don't you think we've done something right? Damn it, he's so smart again. <laughs> he was right. So we filled out our application. 
We said we wanted to be dads. We wanted to be dads to one kid under the age of five. Of course, we wanted to be that cute gay couple that pushed the cute stroller down the street and everybody looked at us and said, oh, we want to be like them. And that's what we did. And we waited and we waited. January 2009, the phone rings. The social worker thought she'd forgotten about us, but she didn't. She said she had a little boy and a little girl that needed a home. They knew that they weren't going to be put up for adoption, but they needed a home and they just felt like we would be the fit. They'd been in foster care and already been to several other homes. The little girl was four and her brother was two. She wanted us to meet them. That's like taking the kid to a candy store. But we did. At that night, she arrived on our front porch. I opened up the door and there stood a social worker holding a baby with a little brown-eyed girl standing next to her that looked so sad. I said to her, I thought you said that he was two. She says he is. She says he has failure to thrive. He's autistic. He's got ADHD. And the doctors say that he will never talk. And he probably will never walk without braces on his legs. I took that little boy out of her hands. And Reese walked into the room. And the first thing he did was take Makai and looked in Makai's eyes. I was so jealous. I saw that connection immediately of a father and a son. And I wanted that. We spent several hours with them that night and the social worker left. I didn't sleep the whole night and neither did Reese. We kept thinking about who was tucking them in, who gave them a bath, who let them know that they matter. The next morning, the social worker called and said, so what do you think? Do you want them? Want them as if they were clothing. Of course. And that day they arrived with their trash bags couldn't believe it after all of these years we as a country who say that we care so much and we still allow kids to carry trash bags i asked the social worker what is this a trash bag and she said what else should they carry i said how about some dignity but i knew at that moment it was time for us to be dads and we were becoming dads to two kids and one she was the saddest little girl I'd ever seen. We went shopping that day because there was nothing in that trash bag I would have ever put on one of my children. And we bought them all new clothes. And every time they looked at a toy, we would throw the toy in the basket. And still, my daughter Amaya never smiled. I got home that night. And as I filled up the tub with as many bubbles as I possibly could get into a bathroom, my daughter climbed into the bathtub. And all she could see was her cute little brown face through all the bubbles. And I looked at Reese and I said, you know, I'm the happiest guy I've ever been in my life. I'm a dad, but I'm a dad to the saddest little girl. Amaya got out of the tub. She went into her new room and there laying on the bed were three nightgowns that Reese had laid out. She walked over, she picked one of them up and she tore the tag off of it. And she turned around and she smiled at me. Maya, why are you smiling? <laughs> she said, Mr. Rob, I've never owned a new nightgown before. See, that's just not acceptable. It's not acceptable that a kid comes into a system because of a choice that someone else made and we can't even give them a new nightgown? And that tag made her smile? What kind of humans are we? But I knew that we had to be dads. Every single day, my husband would leave work and go to the daycare. 
and he would move Makai's arms and legs and he would talk to Makai and say, Makai, we know you're in there. Makai, we know you're in there. We had done as much research as we could about kids who were autistic. And for some reason, we didn't feel that Makai was falling under that. But because he was a kid from the system and we give them shitty insurance, we couldn't take him to the specialist that we wanted to. Even though we offered to pay out of our pocket, the system worked so against these kids that we couldn't even take him to where he needed to be. But we knew we were going to get through to him. And three months into Makai and Amaya being with us, the phone rang again. And the social worker said, we have two more kids. And we know that you have Amaya and Makai, but we'll move them to a new home since they're not going to be adopted. But these two kids are going to be up for adoption, a six-month-old and a two-year-old. The first thing I said, there's no way in hell you're going to take my daughter and my son. But I want to meet the two boys. Reese said, four kids. I said, Reese, we have to meet them. And that's what we did. Fell in love immediately. And within a matter of a week, we became parents to four kids. Amaya was four. My son, Makai, was two. My new son, Grayson, was two. And his little brother was six months. Wow. And they also carried a trash bag. They also came into a system that was completely shattered. Their mother was 12 years old when she gave birth to them. She was 14 when she gave birth to the second. They came into the system with bleeding of the brain, shaken baby syndrome, three broken ribs, and then she took a razor blade and carved her boyfriend's initials in the baby. She was a baby herself, mind you. She was a product of the environment and the system that we stuck her in. And then we took her babies because she didn't know how to parent because we never taught her. But I just knew that we had to be dads to four kids. And that's what we did month after month. And then Amaya and Makai's parents stopped showing up. And after about a year and a half, we decided that it was time to file for adoption. We had decided that these kids had floundered in a system for two years at that point and enough was enough. Kids deserve to have permanency. Kids deserve to have a foundation that doesn't constantly move every time they walk. We all fall, my friends. Each and every one of us make mistakes, but we cannot make mistakes on the backs of children. I believe that each and every one of us deserve to be given a second chance. But how many chances do you give until you realize the trauma that you have put upon these kids? It was time for them to have permanency. And that's what we did. We went in, we hired our own attorney, and we fought. We had to hire bonding study experts. We had to hire people to make sure that they told the court systems because we were two white men, that we were able to raise four black kids, because we were two gay men, that we weren't going to turn our boys gay. We had to go through a trial like you would not believe. And I write about it very, very vividly in our book, A Forever Family. It was crazy what we went through. But every single minute and every single penny was worth it because we became fathers of all four of our children. I remember that day in court when the judge looked at my children and said, what's your name? And my daughter looked at the judge and said, Amaya Shear. And my son, Makai, who had started to talk, by the way, said, my name is Makai Shear. And Grayson looked at the judge and said, my name is Grayson Thomas Shear. And then my sweet little baby, as he looked at the judge and said, 
My name is Tristan Shear, but everybody calls me Bubby. <laughs> God. We were a family and we were making it work eight years ago. We're about five years into being a family. My husband at that moment had decided to be a stay-at-home dad because Makai was barely getting by. See, the fact is, is we were finally able to get Makai decent insurance and take him to doctors and found out that Makai doesn't, doesn't have autism. Makai doesn't have ADHD. Makai has fetal alcohol syndrome. See, fetal alcohol syndrome is when a parent decides to make choices to drink and drug it up when they're pregnant. And so my son was born without his frontal lobe developed, and it will never develop. When we found out at the age of five that this was what Makai had, the doctors told us that this was probably the best we were going to get out of him. I remember looking at those doctors and said, you definitely don't know the shears. We've had worse put upon us. My son will thrive. Our son will have no limits. And one day... I came home from work. See, I'm a banker by trade. I have an e office on the East Coast and the West Coast. I'm always constantly traveling. My kids are actually pretty privileged. They've been all over the place. They have never wanted since they've been with us. But my son, Makai, just wasn't there. And I came home and Reese said, you got to hear this story. I said, what? He said, I read this article about this young girl who was in foster care and she had fetal alcohol syndrome just like Makai. And they put her with a family that had a farm. And it was like, this girl started reading more. And it was I was like, you're kidding me. He was like, no, here's five farms for sale. <laughs> and we literally bought a farm with chickens and goats and a pig named Penelope. <laughs> but my son, he's 14 now. He runs. He laughs. He reads on a fifth grade level. And normally... He has a chicken under his arm. <laughs> and as Ellen DeGeneres calls him, the chicken whisperer. <laughs> My son loves. See, children are resilient. Children are more resilient than you can imagine. Well, during that same time, Reese and I decided that we wanted to teach our children to give back. See, we truly believe that each and every one of us are actual doers. And it's our responsibility to do. And so one particular Christmas, we decided to put some cases together. See, I wanted my kids to know where they came from, not to be ashamed of embarrassed like I was for so many years, to know that their story is something that can empower people. And that's when I decided for the very first time to tell my story, the story that I just told you. I gathered all my senior staff, some members of our church, some of our close friends and neighbors, and my four children, and I told my story. That 12-year-old boy with the trash bag, the kid that nobody expected to amount to anything, the disposable one, the invisible one. And I told them how it made me feel, and that I didn't want another kid in the system to feel like this, and that we had to get rid of the trash bags. And so we started to talk about what we wanted to put in the cases, I knew in the very beginning that we wanted a brand new pair of pajamas with a tag. I knew that I wanted every child to get their own lotion, their own shampoo, their own conditioner, and their own bar of soap. Again, my listeners, if you do not think that the bar of soap is that important, the next time you go to a hotel after this pandemic, ask them to leave the bar of soap from the people before you. Get in the shower and use it. You won't because it's called dignity. 
and these kids deserve it. Then we give every kid an activity. See, we know the fact that over 85% of all kids who come into foster care come in the back of a police cruiser. They go to holding centers where they can be there all day. We wanted every child to have an activity. Kids over the age of 10 get a journal and a pen and pencil set, and kids under the age of 10 get a coloring book and crayons. We wanted to make sure that every kid got a book. See, I do truly believe that education is what separates us. That if we get kids to love to read, we will open up their horizons like you have never seen before. And I know as an author, I wrote my book for two reasons. Number one, I want you to love it in your mind. Number two, love it in your heart. But the most flattering thing you could ever do for a book is pass it on. There's no such thing as a used book. It's only a book that's been loved. And then we give every kid a stuffed animal. I don't care whether you're a newborn or 19, everybody loves a good stuffy. <laughs> and then finally, everybody gets a blankie, a blankie. You know, my son Grayson was six years old when we packed our first case. He said, daddy, we must give everybody a blankie. He said, a blankie? I said, you know, these kids are not cold, Grayson. He says, I know, daddy. He says, but every time they wrap themselves up in their blankie, They'll know we love them. Oh. Wow. Isn't that what we all want? We all want to be loved. We all want to know that we're not disposable, that we're not invisible. And from what started as one case, we have now delivered over 150,000 cases to all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico. And we have done this with the largest corporation in the world, our human race. See, the fact that we all must realize is that our community, it is not our zip code. It's our human race. What affects me in my little town of Darnstown, Maryland, affects people in Quebec and in Austin, Texas, and in Seattle. We must understand that it is our responsibility as good humans to lift each other up. And as I said, the three most important things my community had taught me, I realized that they were wrong. See, my community, they actually did love me. They just weren't educated about me. And I realized as I tell my children, there are three important things in your life. Number one, your community. Number two, your family. And number three, your dash. See, some of you have heard the poem. Every one of us are gonna get it white, black, young, no matter whether you're rich or poor, male or female, we're all given the exact same thing. A dash. Walk through your graveyards. You see them. The year you're born, your dash, and the year you die. I want my dash to shine. I want my children to walk by my dash and say, my dad, he just didn't talk about it. He actually did it. That's what we all should do. So that's my story. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. Well, this was the easiest interview we've ever had to do. First <laughs> off, thank you so much for sharing your story. But when I was looking at the statistics and you talk about all these people who have so much trouble coming out of the child, uh, the foster mm -hmm. care system, what do you attribute to you yourself being so wildly successful? Where did I get that grit? Yeah. Um, 
So, you know what? That reminds me of my fifth child. You know, I've talked about my, in my book about my four kids, mm -hmm. and I told you the story about my yeah. four kids. But if those of you who can watch this on video or if they go and see any of our videos, this is my fifth child, Alex. So two years ago, I was giving a speech at a local high school. I left my banking career and I'm now a public speaker and an advocate for kids all across our country. And as I was giving the speech, I could tell that there was a young man in the audience who was getting emotional. Afterwards, he walked up to me and asked if I would sign his book. I asked him what his name was. He said, Alex. I said, Alex, tell me something about yourself. He says, I have nothing to tell. I've been in foster care most of my life. I'm 18. I'm going to age out. I'm going to be homeless just like you were. I meet thousands of kids all over the country. But the way this boy said it to me hit me so hard. I saw myself in his eyes. And when the principal told me that he had a 3.6, I knew that, that we had to do something. I gave Alex my private cell phone number and told him to get in touch with me. That night, I told my children and my husband about meeting this young boy. And one of my kids said, Dad, we need to invite him for dinner. He said, what a great idea. The next day, Alex called me. I said, Alex, you want to come to our farm and have dinner this weekend? I'll call your foster parents. He said, really? I said, yeah. He said, I'd love for you to meet my kids and my husband. And sure enough, I picked Alex up on that Saturday, and we came to the farm, spent the day. We decided to go out to dinner that night. And as we're sitting in the restaurant, my son Tristan looked at Alex and said, you know, you can order anything off the menu and my dad's <laughs> going to say anything. And he was like, I can order anything? He's like, yeah, I'm getting the shrimp fajitas. <laughs> like, I'm going to get them too. You know, I saw at that moment the way my kids were interacting with Alex. And we took Alex home that night and the car was very quiet. All of a sudden, my son Makai, my son Makai, who the system said he wasn't gonna talk and walk. My son, Makai said, Daddy, we have to do something for Alex. I said, I know, buddy, but I just don't know what. And he said, Daddy, we have to bring him home. Mm -hmm. My other kids said, he needs to come home with us. I looked at my husband as a tear was rolling down his eye and he said, he needs us and we need him. Within three months, we had to petition the courts to have Alex come home with us. And I will let you know that your question was, where, do I, where did I get that grit? Where did I get that? Because like my son, Alex, I knew I deserved better. And so did Alex. Since then, my son, Alex, has graduated from high school. He's enrolled in college in his second semester. And within three months, and he's already 20, we will sign his adoption papers and he will be officially a sheer. Wow. That's so cool. And his resilience comes from what mine came from. He deserves better. Okay, Rob, we're just going to take a quick break and let our listeners know that we are supported by Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Crafted without alcohol, sugar, or calories, Seedlip spirits solve the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, the month, or forever. 
and usually on podcast nights to keep our mental acuity. We are not drinking, but we want to be relaxed. We want to have fun, and we want to have something tasty to sip on. It's true, and as a non-drinker, it never feels great when the only options are water, soda, or sugary mocktails. But now, you can skip the booze without feeling left out when it comes to your social life. So whether you prefer punchy citrus flavors like Shane, aromatic spices, or savory herbs like me, Seedlip offers a drink for every drinker. I didn't know we were so different. <laughs> it's crafted using a bespoke process, including traditional copper distillation of botanicals. And each of Seedlip's three variants, Spice 94, Garden 108, and Grove 42, are alcohol-free and have their own unique flavors, which pair so perfectly with just a splash of tonic. They can also be used to make more complex cocktails, like the ones you'll find in their Seedlip cocktail book or on Instagram at seedlip underscore na. So head on over to seedlipdrinks.com and use the promo code thisfamilytree10 for 10% off of your favorite non-alcoholic spirit. This is available in Canada and in the US. And again, it's seedlipdrinks.com and thisfamilytree10. Try it if you haven't. I assure you, you will not be disappointed, but we are also supported by Mini Miosh. Mini Miosh is a premium, organic, ethically made and sustainable kids and babies clothing company founded and created in Toronto. They believe in quality over quantity and they make the best basics that you can find for your littles. Lou's addicted to them. Betty is going to be addicted to them. And I wish every piece of Lou's clothing was Mini Miyasha. It would make our lives a lot easier. Oh, she complains to high heaven when she's not wearing something Mini Miyasha because she doesn't have like the fun vibe plus the comfort. And yeah, they look great, but the functionality is also the easiest stuff to get on and off. So I appreciate it as a parent. Absolutely. They're fashionable wardrobe staples that are super soft, comfy, and timeless and can be passed from child to child regardless of gender. Plus, they use organic cotton fabrics that are knit and dyed locally using GOTS certified organic cotton and low impact non-toxic dyes. They're on a mission to leave the planet better off for our little ones than when they arrived on it, and they believe that every little bit counts. You can find the company online at minimiosh.com or at minimiosh on Instagram and Facebook. Use the promo code thisfamilytree15 for 15% off your order. This is available in Canada and in the US, and again, that is minimiosh.com and thisfamilytree15. Family Tree 15. Seriously, head to this website, check it out. I promise you, you're going to love it. But now let's get back to our interview with Rob. Rob, you know, we you spoke a lot about not being supported by community and how we keep failing kids and parents. And it's so cyclical and it's it's proven to be cyclical. And you really have to have that grit and have to really work hard to get out of it. And I'm so curious that, you know, as a child, you were failed by numerous facets in the community and then initially as a parent when you were talking about Mackay the system wouldn't even allow you to pay for better medical care for him but now as two gay parents to five children do you have community support now or do you find that you are still trying to fight for that? So that is, first of all, I have to tell you, that's an amazing question. And um, understand that I didn't get to where I'm at today without lots of struggle. Mm -hmm. Okay, first of all, I want to thank my therapists who are all listening and watching because <laughs> therapy has truly helped me. But I also know that forgiveness has helped me. You know, when I was in my early 30s, and by the way, um, after recovering from drug addiction, um, four suicide attempts, 
cramps. I suffer from depression. I was in my early 30s when I went to my mother's grave for the first time since I was 12 years old, and I fell on my knees and I forgave her. I forgave her and my father for everything that had happened to me. I'd already forgiven my foster parents, and I'd already forgiven all of you as a community, but I needed to forgive them. And let's remind all of everybody who's listening, I did not forgive them for them. Mm -hmm. I forgave them for me. See, that's what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is about taking the power back. And that's what I was doing. So when it comes to after that moment, did I have the support of the community? You better believe it. Mm -hmm. Do I have the support of the community now? You better believe it. First of all, I'm a loud mouth. You better support me because if not, I'm going to call you out. But I have to tell you, we still have so much pushback. Um, we still have so far to go. We still have, you know, let me tell you, I have people that have walked up to us. And the thing that probably pisses me off the most is they come up to me and they're like, oh, my God, your family is so beautiful. I do not see any color. And then I'm like, well, then you do not see my four kids. Mm -hmm. The fact is, as I am a white, privileged male in a society that has pushed people of color down, 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 and the system does it even worse, even worse. Mm -hmm. But what we have done as an organization and as a family as we have surrounded ourselves with people who lift us up. So yeah, you know, do we still get some pushback? Better believe it. But do we get more love? Hey, we get a lot more love than we get pushback, my friends. And your siblings, you have nine siblings. Nine. Are you that crazy? That's crazy. <laughs> so most of my siblings have um so there's only there's only five of us left. So um my other siblings have either died of drug overdose suicide, breast cancer, and heart attack, and then another drug overdose. And then I have a brother who's serving life in prison. I have a brother who chooses to be homeless. And I do say chooses to be homeless because we have tried everything in the world to help him get off the streets. And he just, he won't. He won't deal with his mental issues that he has. And then I have three other siblings. I have one sister that I'm very, very close to. And as I was writing the book, I had her very involved in it because, you know, this is not just my story. This is my family story. This is my children's story. And I knew it was going to be rough and I knew it was going to be raw. And I knew that I was going to talk about when, when, when Simon and Schuster and Derek Jeter came to me about writing my memoir, the first thing I did was I sit my husband and my children down and I said, listen, daddy has an opportunity to write a book about his life. And I said, and that, that my life story involves all of you. And if you don't want daddy to tell anything, you can tell me. And I'm okay with that. But I had said to my husband, if I could not be authentic about the story and truly tell what happened, then why really was I doing it for, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's why I decided to be as raw as I am. And and I had, I, had, I was interviewing yesterday and someone who read my book of Forever Family said, um, it was really hard to get through the first three chapters mm -hmm. because the pain is so real. And it is true. It is real. But you have to understand that's the pain and the flight of so many other kids in the system who are going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Rob, you have so much experience and so much wisdom just from everything you've lived. Really, you do. And of all of that, what do you hope will impact your kids the most in their lives out of what you can offer them? Oh, God. You know, I hit the lottery. 
I didn't hit the lottery just when I met Reese. I hit the lottery when I became the dad of five unbelievable humans. And I always remind people that they're humans. And what I just hope is that they continue to be good humans. You know, I don't care if they're doctors or lawyers. I don't care if they work for nonprofits or they work for Fortune 500 companies. What I care about is that they give. They give. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's all about, being a good human. Understanding that it's so important that we do five things every week, as I tell my kids. I need you to look at five people that you don't know and do an act of kindness, even if it's just a smile. The next time you pull up at the traffic light and you see the person with the sign and you don't have the goodie bag that I ask my kids to carry in the car all the time to hand to them, or you don't have a couple dollars, look at them, acknowledge them, smile at them. It could be the only smile they could get. I hope they get that. And have your children spoken to you about their aspirations or what? Well, understanding. So my kids now are 20, 16, 14, 13, and 12. Right. So um, one wants to be a professional football player, of course. <laughs> yeah. um, my one son, my son, Makai, wants to be a gamer. My other son hasn't decided whether or not he wants to be a football player or an actor. My oldest son wants to be a psychologist. And wow. he, I, you know, he's, he's my son that takes, you know, right now he's taking Chinese in college. Wow. And my daughter, Amaya, oh, Oh, let me tell you, I have one girl and I could only have one girl. My, my daughter asked me all the time, dad, are we going to have more kids? And I said, probably. I said, I don't think your dad and I are done having kids. I said, but I'm never going to have another girl. And she says, no. And I said, no, because I only have room in my heart for one princess. Um, she is a princess. And I hope one day she finds somebody to treat her like the queen that she's going to be. But she is a daddy's girl. And she um, she doesn't know what she's going to do right now. She's she's more concerned about her friends. And, you know, she's 16. She turned 16 last year. And um, for me, you know, turning 16, it was like, oh, my gosh, get your license. And, you know, and no. And so I'm like, she's now going to be 17. And I said to her, I said, honey, I said, are you not going to get your driver's license? She says, dad, she says, I don't really feel the need. She's like, I have a brother who drives <laughs> and has his own car. We bought Alex a car for his birthday. So he has his own car. He drives. He's like, she's like, if I need to go anywhere, she's like, I just asked Alex and he always takes me. And she's like, and if he doesn't, you and dad, have put Uber on my phone. So why do I need to <laughs> Exactly. <drive?"> yeah. That... <laughs> Rob, I had my father driving me around until I was 24. I did not get my license until I was 24. Because dad, dad was there. I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. <laughs> but, you know, I have a final question for you that I really love getting different parents' takes on. How would you like to see the paradigm of parenthood change or of fatherhood change? Oh, my God. First of all, you know, parenting is a hard job. Mm -hmm. You know, my husband, who's a stay-at-home dad, he's got the hardest job in the world. He works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's what a stay-at-home parent does. You know, I really would hope that as parents of the future, we would understand that we're all equal, you know, and whether you're a, a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, whether you're a same-sex couple, whether you're a heterosexual couple, whether you're a single parent, um, I, I just wish that parents would understand that you're not in this alone, 
okay? And your kids aren't going to love you every minute of the day. And they're not there to be your best friend. But the one question that, the one answer I always tell everybody, I have people ask me quite often, is there anything that I would do different, you know, as being a dad of five kids? And by the way, we became a dad of four within three months. Is there anything that I would have done different? And yes, I would. I wouldn't have introduced electronics to my kids at an early age. See, for me, I was a kid who didn't have anything. You know, I I don't remember the new shoes or, you know, I I was 40 years old before I had my first birthday party. And so, you know, I try to give more to my kids because I, I've missed out, I feel like. And sometimes that's not always a good thing to do. Um, but, you know, I, I would say I would definitely would have backed up on the electronics. Yeah, that makes sense. You, there's one thing you'll know about me. I'm an honest guy who's always <laughs> going to keep it real. And and I definitely would say for my family, I would have kept electronics <laughs> out of their hands. What about the farm life? Do you see yourself continuing that forever, or when the children leave, are you? Does the farm leave also? Okay, so 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 you two both have to. Whenever if you ever get an opportunity to come to the DC area, I'd love to invite you to our farm. So yes. so you got to realize I'm a city boy. Even though my husband grew up in Kansas, we neither one of us knew nothing about farm. Okay, we bought a book, we read it, we actually had goats born on our farm. I had never milked a goat in my entire life. He had to hold up a YouTube video for me to um, figure out how to milk this goat so these two new babies could get some milk into them. But now it's been, you know, we've been on the farm now for eight years. We gather our own eggs. I can my own vegetables. We have a huge garden. So the question, will I keep the farm? You know, I tease my children all the time and I always tell them that when Tristan, who's my 12-year-old, when he goes off to college, that daddy's selling the farm and buying a one-bedroom condo. <laughs> and none of you can come and stay with us and we have to come to all of you but my husband always says the same thing every single time he laughs and says we will always have this farm because we cannot wait for our grandkids to come and enjoy it as much as we have all enjoyed it. So having five kids and knowing that we'll probably have more kids, I think the farm is in our lives for a long, long time. And Rob, do you have anything on the horizon that you guys are working on right now or anything that our listeners uh, should hear about? Well, first of all, I would love for everybody to go to comfortcases.org and read about our organization. Please buy a copy of A Forever Family. People don't realize every time you buy that book, it actually goes to the charity. My husband and I do not take um, from the book. We actually, um, we donate everything to our organization. So, you know, please buy A Forever Family. You know, you can go to our website. I'll even sign a copy of it for you. And do I have things on the horizon? Things have been crazy. You know, even with the pandemic. I'm very, very lucky. I've written two new books with my amazing friend, June Foster. Um, June is the author of The Golden Leaf, and she was on the Bravo show um, Below Deck. Um, her and I wrote two children's books um, that we hope will be out by 2022. I actually have two new TV shows that I'm working on. And so, you know, and, and continuing to 
figure out how we can change our foster care system because mm -hmm. that has to be done. I, I tell people there's two things that we need to do immediately. Number one, we need to set these kids up for financial success. If we're able to take a check and give it to a foster parent, why can't we take some of that money and put it in an interest-bearing savings account so when the children do age out of the system that they're given a net? Yes. See, fact is, is my son Alex, who is 20 years old, if he gets a flat tire on the side of the road, he can call his dad's and we're going to call AAA and we're going to pay to get his flat tire fixed. But kids who age out of the system, who have no family, they also have no net. And we need to do that. The second thing that we must do, and we must do it immediately, is we need to open up the education pathways for every single kid in the system. And I do not mean just pay for tuition. We need to pay for wraparound services for these kids. And by the way, at 20, 21, 25, they still need the services mm -hmm. and they still deserve for us to be there for them. But if one thing that your listeners could do is to talk about foster care, Talk about the over 100,000 children just in the United States that are actually waiting for a forever home. And I have lots of friends who reach out to me from Canada, from all over Canada, where you guys are having the same issues that we're having. Your, your kids are actually carrying garbage bags just like our kids. Your kids are being switched from family to family to family to home to home to home, just like our kids. There is no place in our world that is doing this right. And we must come together and figure out what can we do? Because I will tell you, if we do not do something today, you're going to do something tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Because what we do is just build more prisons. Yeah. And that's got to stop. Yeah. And well, yeah. yeah. And where where can folks go, Rob, to follow along with your journey? Yeah. So any, everybody can go to comfortcases.org to our website. You can follow me at Rob Shear on Instagram, Rob Shear 6 on my Twitter account. Go to Comfort Cases on Facebook. You know, follow our journey. You know, we, we've been really lucky. Um, social media has been how we have grown our charity to this little grassroots charity to now we are a national charity. Um, we're actually getting ready to expand into the UK. Wow. Um, you know, we, we truly do believe that this is something each and every one of us can help with. You know, I, I say this quite often to people, you don't have to have money to give back. You all have the most valuable thing in the world and that's your time, your time. So you all can be doing something, each and every one of us can be doing. So what I say, go to comfortcases.org, really see how you can impact your community and realize that your community is not your zip code, but our human race. I, th I think that's so beautiful. And Rob, this has been such an impactful, such a beautiful conversation. And we so appreciate you being so candid and open and warm with us that I, I, I'm very affected right now. Yeah, it was an easy interview because you, you talk so well, but tough to listen to. Yeah. A lot of, like I'm so like emotionally drained in a, a good way, I guess. But yeah, mm -hmm. no, thank you so much. That, that was really wonderful, Rob. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you so much. And it was so wonderful meeting you. And I'm taking you up on that farm offer if we were ever. <laughs> we have it in recording. So. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. I mean, this is so unbelievable. I'm so I'm so humbled that you reached out and that, you know, that you're going to tell our story. And, you know, thank you. Just absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. No, we, we feel we feel very honored to be able to do so. But All right. Have a terrific afternoon. All the best. Yes. Perfect. Nice meeting you, Rob. Keep in touch. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Take care. Bye bye. Okay, that was the Shearmeister. I'm not sure if that's his nickname, but it is now. So I absolutely loved that conversation. And honestly, I felt the heaviness of it. And I felt the joy that came from it as well for so long after we spoke to him. He's definitely full of goodness. Oh, my gosh. Like like crazy. And for it me, emanates it's off of him. Just, just the life he has had is it's remarkable and it's remarkable the person that he is the person that his husband is and that they are just this incredibly loving family and creating a beautiful life that he never had for these kids yeah but let's move on now to tess brigham again great free-flowing conversation she knows her stuff and enjoy this interview but before we get to her let's tell everyone who we are supported by we are supported by Bravado Designs. They make the best nursing bras that you can get your hands on. I was just going to say that, and in fact, I am the one that introduced you to this bra. I said, bra, meet Alex. You said hello, and then before I knew it, you were in love. It's true, and I loved you even more for introducing me to it, so thank you. And if I don't thank you every day enough for this introduction, I need to start. You're welcome. <laughs> A lot of Moana in this house. But they have now created an everyday collection. So these bras have no clips. They are not for nursing parents. And they're for anybody with boobs to hold up. They are beautiful bras and you have the same amazing comfort that you're used to with their nursing bras. So you can get the nursing bras at bravadodesigns.com or you can head on over to the Canadian website for access to the everyday collection at ca.bravadodesigns.com. But regardless of which website you go to, use the promo code thisfamilytree20 for 20% off your order. Again, that is bravadodesigns.com or cabravadodesigns.com and this family tree 20. But now let's get to our interview with Tess Brigham. Tess, thank you so much for joining us today. I have to ask before we proceed, do I put a doctor in there? I know oh, you no. are a psychotherapist. No? <laughs> no. So I'm a, I'm a licensed psychotherapist, but I'm not a psychologist. So I don't have a PhD of a master's degree. Okay. So then I think I'm confused about what a psychotherapist is. What is, what is a psychotherapist then? So it is, it's a therapist basically, or here I am, my license is marriage and family therapist. It's very confusing. I know because there are some people who have what they call CITES, which are doctor of psychology. And then there's, you know, a PhD, which is doctor of philosophy, but, and then there's social workers and everybody has these different licenses and we all kind of do different things. And so it's hard to say, because a lot of times people hear marriage and family therapists, then they assume that I only work with kids and couples right. and such, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a master's degree. And then I went through the process of getting licensed, which is an arduous process within itself. And it's mainly a degree that people get who want to work with, you know, individuals, families, couples, just want to work with people in interpersonal issues. Right. We were talking with a, another guest a while back and I asked them, what's the difference between a life coach and a therapist? And they said a degree. Do you have, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty good answer, but do you, yeah. have, do you have any other definition of it? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, because I'm also I'm also a board certified coach, which is a whole other thing <laughs> with coaching. So I do both. And people ask me this question all the time. And the best way that I can explain is, yes, it's the degree. And it's the years of licensing and the process of it. But when I think about it, when I think about being a therapist, it's really about thinking about a person and where you are today and thinking about the past. Where have you been? You know, what what are your relationships like? What are your what's your childhood been like? Who are you today and looking into the past to better understand yourself so that you can make different choices today? When I think about coaching and life coaching, you are asking people about their past, but you're not digging into it too much. You're not trying to figure, you know, you're not finding out about their relationships with their mother. You're not doing any of that. You're really thinking about the person today and where you want to go in the future. You're helping them create goals and a plan of action and figuring out what's the resistance, what's getting in your way. But there is a, there's a tremendous amount of overlap, which confuses people, I can imagine. And I think the part that's hard is coaching is one of those things where the, there's a very, anybody can call themselves a coach. There's a low barrier of entry, but there's also other people who have been coaching, who have, you know, all the certifications have been coaching for 20 years. Right. And then you'll get someone with a license who's only been licensed for a few years. So, you know, so I always tell people it really comes down to, do you like this person? Do you trust this person? Do you feel like this person can help you? You know, the ethics, obviously being a therapist, the ethics are, and the laws are very, very strict coaching. There are no laws. There are no, you know, there's ethics and, 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 and such, but the, the laws are very, very clear of what I can and cannot do as a therapist. And coaching is much more of a broad of a bit more of like the standard that you hold yourself to. When you have all this information and education, do you find it harder on yourself when you are feeling lost, like you've lost your way or you're feeling down because you know the answers and in spite of that, you're still feeling depressed? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. I think what's interesting is, is that I have a, so I struggle just like everybody else does. And I work with people myself, you know, and I, that's, I believe in it. And yeah, I have a lot of awareness into, into what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking and what's happening. It doesn't necessarily mean that I don't obviously make the same excuses for myself that maybe clients will come in. I mean, you're just more aware of it. Like there are big times where I'm in these moments where I'll even hear myself say some things and I'm like, Oh my God, that's what my clients say to me all the time. And I'm, you know, and I'm challenging them on it. So yeah, you're right. It's very common in helping professions. You see this a lot with therapists, nurses, you know, EMT, where they're, we're very, very good at dealing with everybody else's feelings, emotions, mm -hmm. their problems. But when it comes to ourselves, we're, you know, just as lost and confused. And that's just because, right, that, that we need, I mean, this is how I'm able to make a living is, is that truly we cannot solve our own stuff all the time. Like we cannot see things when we're going through it, when we're in the middle of it, we can't see it the way someone else can. And that is just, that's, that's just it. There's no magical. That's why anybody that you see is probably, well, all therapists and, and other people are seeing other therapists for themselves. It's not that we don't, we, it's not like we're holding back on some magic formula for people. Is there a formula to who needs a life coach or a therapist or does everyone need one? I would say in a perfect world, I always say everyone would have both. 
You would have, you know, in a perfect world, everybody would have a therapist. Everyone would have a coach. Everyone would have something in their back pocket when they need it. I am a big believer that therapy nor coaching should last forever. It's Mm -hmm. not about sitting on someone's couch for the rest of your life every single week. It's, it's an active process. It needs to be an active process. So the idea of it is, is that it would be nice if everyone could went, you know, pick up the phone and call someone or, you know, email and have a therapist or a coach that they can say, Hey, can we meet? You know, I want to meet again for the next, however long it is. And, or just this one time. Um, And and it's hard because there's, you know, it's difficult to find someone and money and all of these other pieces. Mm-hmm. And on your Instagram bio, so it says, I wrote it down, you help people find their path so that they can make an impact on the world. And you work a lot with families, right? So marriage and families, that kind of environment. So how do you bring that philosophy to family? Because when I picture it, I'm like, okay, that's more of like – to me, it seems like a business sense or, you know, a personal ethos in personal growth. So how do you apply that to kind of families? Well, so I specialize in working with young adults. So 20 somethings into their thirties, millennials, Gen Zers. And so when it comes, usually the families that come to me are parents who have adult children who are sitting on their couch (laughs) And they're like, why is my 20 year old still at my house? How do I help them? Or or how do I navigate this relationship? So it's, it's when I talk about finding your path that I do believe that everybody, we all each have our own unique life path. We all have this purpose for being here. We all have a calling. We all have something that we um, want to be doing that will, that is very fulfilling. It doesn't mean that it's easy all the time and that any of those things, but and that I'm really helping people find their way in the world and figuring out who you are, what you want. And a lot of times in the family context, it's a, around learning how to, you know, especially once kids become adults, like, mm-hmm. how do we do this? You know, now I am no longer running your life. So how am I your parent now? Mm-hmm. How do I parent you in this new way. This I use this example of when you're, when your child is young, you know, you're the CEO you're running the show, you're in charge of everything. And as they get older, your role steps back, you know, you're no longer the CEO, you're the consultant that comes in that gives some advice and then walks out the door and is not responsible anymore. And that's the best way to describe it is just helping parents figure out how do I how do I help and launch my young my kids? How do I get them out of the house and into their own lives? And, or, you know, how do I manage my own feelings about what my kids are doing and not doing? Mm -hmm. You know, I I think for a lot of parents, a lot of times I'll just work with the parents. I won't won't ever meet their kid (laughs) because, and, and they're always amazed that we've radically changed their relationship without ever meeting their child because you as the parent, we can change any relationship by relating to somebody differently we have a lot more power and control over that than we think. We can't change other people, but we can change our dynamic with another person and how they relate to us. What is a, a main difference you notice between a millennial and a gen? Is it, It's called Gen Z, is that the middle gen part? Z. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's a good question. I think that, you know, I, I, I love talking about millennials because I feel like as a generation, they have been, they have unfortunately been the guinea pigs of our world, right? We forget that 
this is a group of people that were born in that while maybe they're not digital natives, they primarily grew up and in their really formative years had social media, had the internet, had all of these things that really influenced, right? How they saw themselves, how they relate to the world. And then they were very heavily criticized for so much of what they do and how they, they are. And I think the biggest difference with millennials and Gen Zers is that millennials will have some memories of life before social media and the internet. Gen Zers don't like they're very much born into it. I think many of them saw what millennials went through. They sort of like, Oh, I've, I saw how, how social media and all that stuff affected you. Okay. I'm going to do it a little bit differently. Gen Z is very well known for being much more risk averse, much more cautious. They're a more anxious generation. They have different relationships with their parents you know, I think what we see now is kids who, and this is something else too, where I have parents who are like, yeah, my kid's living at home, but I kind of like it, you know, I, because they have a closer relationship with their kids, you know, than, than ever, than other generations. It used to be that people could not wait, could not wait to get a license and could not wait to get out of the house and go. And what we're seeing more and more, especially with Gen Zers is, you know, maybe I'll get the license. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll go off to college at 18. Maybe I'll take a gap year. You know, there's less of this pressure of getting away from their parents. And I'm constantly amazed by how much my clients tell their parents about their lives, about what they're doing, like stuff I would never tell my mother. It shocks me to hear that they're risk averse because I see the stuff that Gen Z puts out on TikTok, (laughs) on Instagram. That does not seem risk averse. (laughs) Yeah, they tend to be more risk averse. That's what the studies have shown. But I mean, I, I know what you're talking about. My son's 13, so I'll, I'll sometimes see some of the things that he's watching and I'm like, what, yeah. what is this? Yeah, but they, they are definitely, they're much more anxious and that's huge. It's a problem because of social, because of technology. I don't think we quite know the impact of it. And obviously right now with the pandemic, like we have generations of people who, and kids that are very much their lives, their lives and and formative years are being greatly affected by what's happening right Mm -hmm. now. So I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, where we're, where we all are mentally 10 years from now. And I suppose they're more open because we're like millennial parents are more open Mm -hmm. to listening. Like my dad was much more emotionally disconnected than I am. Yes. Uh, but is there, a, is there a sweet spot to cut the cord? Like I feel my sister moved out when she was 30. I moved out when I was 26. Is, the, is there any proven study that it's like, oh, leave by 22 or you're going to have some sort of dependency issue? I think it's important for everyone to be able to move out simply for the act of being on your own and being independent and doing things on your own, you know, solving your own problems figuring things out. When parents let their kids stay so long, you're sort of giving your kid a vote of no confidence. You're sort of saying, I don't believe that you can go out and do these things. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the hardest parts about being a parent is that it is a constant balance back and forth, back and forth of, do I push or do I not? Do I, do I, you know, push them to do this thing, you know, or do I let go? Do I help or do I not? And I know that there, I don't think there's a hard and fast, like by 22 or by this age, we see a lot of kids moving back in with their parents. Now there's actually more young people are living with their parents than they are living with a spouse or a partner. So we see this a lot now. And I understand why 
you know, a lot of people graduated from college and can't get jobs because of the pandemic. So it's a little bit of like, no, I don't think that your kids should be homeless. Like, I, I think that if you, if you have the means and the ability that absolutely your child, you know, if, if you can allow them to come home and come home for a piece of time, I think the biggest piece of it is what's the plan. I think kids that come home with this, there's no plan, there's no, and maybe they're working and they, they start to get used to being at home with mom and dad, not paying a big chunk of rent every month, not having to deal with certain things. Maybe they're cooking their meals and doing their laundry, but, you know, taking out the garbage, doing some of these basics of running a household. I think that that, I think it gets, especially if you get along with your parents, I think it gets super easy after a while. And it's like, oh, this is nice. Like, why would I leave my, I'm like, why would I pay 4,000? It's like, I'm in the San Francisco Bay area. So why would I pay $4,000 a month to live in an apartment with a bunch of other people? It's, it's, you know, why would I do that? Like, what is the point of that? And so I think it's the parent wants the child, it, it should be a place for them. I always say it should be a rest stop, not the destination. So I, I think that, again, I don't know the circumstances of, you know, you and your sister. I think some of it is if she's, you know, if your sister is like trying to get a degree and this is the only way to do it and, and all of that, I think it's my parents helped me out tremendously. I would not have been able to get through being a therapist because you get very little money in the beginning mm-hmm. when you're trying to get your hours. There's no way I could have gotten through all of that without my family. But I, there is a point at which are you are you becoming a crutch? Mm-hmm. See, it's funny. So I grew up in um, with very European friends. I come from a European background as well. Everybody stays with their parents until they get married or mm. move in with somebody seriously. Honestly, mm. like after I moved away for college, for university, I came home. I had no plans on leaving until I met Shane and then we bought a house together. But we were only even able to buy a house together because I was living with my parents Mm -hmm. and saving money. I didn't want to stay with them forever. And Lord knows they did not want me to stay with them forever. But I was happy there as long as it took. And, you know, you, you talk about people having these good relationships with their parents and it makes them easier. And one thing that I wanted to touch on with you today is how those relationships change when the kids themselves start having families and start having children. Because, you know, for me, for all of my friends, for most of our listeners, there comes a tension in that relationship when they become parents themselves, whether it's with their own parents or whether it's with in-laws. And do you, are you presented with those issues ever? And what might be, if you are, what might be something that you commonly hear? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think the most common thing that I hear is it depends on who it's coming from, but usually if it's the, if it's the young parent with the child is feeling like mom and dad are taking over for me, they're telling me how to parent. My parents are trying to parent my children. And that's usually one of the biggest complaints and, or you'll hear from someone who is the mother-in-law or something. And they're feeling like, you know, I never get to see my grandchildren or I don't get along with my daughter-in-law. So there's all this tension and, and I feel like I don't, I don't have the ability to see them, um, you know, as much as I want to, but a lot of it always, these big issues really stem around parents, you know, the, the parents who have an idea of how children should be parented And then there's these new parents that are trying to figure it out. And in some ways, yes, you, I, I, it does take a village. Again, I lived next door to my mother for the first 
seven years of my child's life. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, that was huge. And I loved my mom and she was great. And it was, she was so happy and grateful to be able to do it. And at the same time, you know, it, it did create a lot of problems with my husband and this, my mother-in-law telling me what to do and how to do it and, and all of that. And it, the thing is, is that it's all very well-meaning for the most part. Like I've never seen anyone come at it from a place of just pure, what we see in the movies, like pure evil. Mm-hmm. It comes from a really good place, but it is, it's, I think it's very hard for parents to obviously see their child struggling and so if they see their child struggling with being a parent and, and parenting their children, it's very hard for them. They have to, the, the challenge is they have to bite their tongue and stay out of it and let their own child figure out how to be a parent and wait until your child comes to you and says, hey, what should I do about this? What should I do about that? Versus you always butting in and offering advice mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, it isn't your child you know, and you do have to respect the choices of the parents. And I'm sure now, right, you talked earlier about the generations of how generations are very different. I I see a lot of times of grandparents kind of feeling like, well, why do they keep coddling their kids? And, you know, why do they, you know, they should be making them do this or making them do that. And that comes up a lot, which is millennial parents have a different relationship with their children. You know, parents who had millennial children, they had a different relationship with their children. Mm-hmm. You know, I see this a lot where the parents of millennials, many of them grew up in large households. Many of them grew up in these authoritarian households. And many of them, they decided consciously, like, I'm going to have a different relationship with my child. I don't want my child to be afraid to come and talk to me. I want my child to feel free to, to feel comfortable to talk to me about anything. And they had less children and there was more time and attention and all of that. And so now that millennials are having children themselves, I think they're really trying to, they want to emulate some of the best qualities of their parents. And it's still a struggle of how do I do, you know, how do I do this? How do I do this the way in which I want to do it? And as the parent, how do you not butt in? (laughs) Why is it always the mother-in-law? I never hear anyone say, oh, I don't like my father-in-law. It's always the, what is it about that? I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure I'm trying to think about if there has been, I mean, I'm sure there have been father-in-law issues, but I, I think it's a mother thing. And, and I do, I think that mothers and women in general, I don't want to make all these, these general statements about the difference between men and women, but just from my years of, of working with both men and women over the years, <laughs> you know, women are, they're much more attuned to things. They're more aware. They're, you know, paying a, a lot more attention and there's a tremendous amount of pressure on, you know, when it comes to parenting, parenting is very difficult and being a mother is even more difficult because the buck stops with you. Like people really, if, if your child's not doing well, it starts with the mom. And I think that the mother in these relationships between the in-laws, I think the mother feels the pressure, feels that, oh, something's happening with this child. I'm more attuned to it. I'm noticing it and it's bothering me a lot more. And I think they're more willing to speak up about it. I think father-in-laws and, you know, in general are much more like, eh, they'll work it out. My, <laughs> um, my hands, you know, whatever. I wonder if that will change uh, in the next generation, if father-in-laws will be more annoying because this generation is more uh, involved with the children, thus more likely to butt in and feel ownership or, or something like that over the grandchildren. 
Maybe, maybe yeah. it'll be interesting to see. I, 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 I think the other part of it too is if the if the parents are together, right? Then there's this feeling of you know, are the the grandparents if the grandparents are together? I do think there might be this dynamic if you've got a grandfather on his own he might feel this great need to butt in a little bit more, you know, advocate for myself. You know, I want to see these grandchildren. I want to have more of a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. It's usually women and mothers that are the ones negotiating and, you know, let's see our parents, let's do this, let's do that. I mean, I'm constantly like with my husband, I I have to constantly, you know, you should call your mom, it's her birthday and do this and (laughs) do that, right? Yeah. See, now I want to talk about repairing these relationships and we'll touch on relationships between you know, new mothers and their parents in a second. But since we're on the in-laws, I want to talk about that. So, you know, maybe in-laws not seeing their grandkids could be a thing. I find, at least with me and my group of friends, that the set of grandparents that sees the grandkids the most are the girls, right? The the mothers. Because Mm -hmm. with my sets of friends anyways – they're just closer. They have closer relationships. And then I often hear of the man's, uh, the husband's or the father's parents feeling a little bit disconnected. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with our family, my parents live down the road. We see them every single day. And pandemic aside, we see Shane's mom and stepdad less. Mm-hmm. So what is a way that people can take to kind of repair these relationships and even if it's just going to work out that they see them less that nobody's kind of feeling bad about it Mm -hmm. yeah and I and I understand that I I do feel for parents who if your child lives 3,000 miles away you don't have the same relationship with your grandkids you know I really encourage if those grandparents want to have you know once the pandemic's over and it's safe to travel <laughs> um, if those grandparents want to have a different relationship or a closer relationship with their grandkids it, it means that they have to do the work I mean I think the biggest thing is in any relationship friendships romantic relationships jobs homes everything is an investment it's where you put your time and attention to so if you're committed to having a relationship with someone and you're putting time intention focus on that then it will bloom it will grow you know and i think that's really really important to, for people to understand is it is stop worrying and stop focusing on what the other person is doing and you figure out what you need to be doing it's that same thing of like well i always call my friends and they never call me back it's a little bit like okay fine you know you be the one to initiate the plans like they like you. They're showing up. They want it. They're taking your call. They're not ghosting you. That means they like you that, that if you have a grandchild and they're living far away, then take your vacations there, then go, you know, ask them when would be a good time for us to come when, you know, I, there are obviously always breaks for kids that they have mm-hmm. that where they're home for a week or two and parents really need extra help. It's like, I'm going to come out for your spring break. I know you guys are all going to be home or I'm, and you, and you two take a trip or you two go away for a day or two, making, just making the point of doing it and continuing to show up. It's consistency. Mm -hmm. It's consistency over and over and over again. And, you know, the, what I've seen this and I, I've seen this a lot, which, which is, is that it, it people, and I always say to people, the buck stops with the parent. Like when it comes to my son, 
a buck stops with me. I'm the grown up. I'm the adult. It stops with me. So if, if someone needs to apologize, it needs to be me. If someone needs to be the bigger person, it needs to be me. If someone needs to, it's like, that's on me. He's a kid. And I think it's the same. If you're the parent and this is your, your son and he's married and he's got these kids, it's on you. Go figure out how you can show up and be there, be helpful, be open, be loving, and don't tell him how to parent. Be a good house guest if you're going to stay there or don't, you know, really figure out and think like, what do, what do they need? What do they need from me? And sending the gifts that aren't that, you know, maybe it's tuition for something. Maybe, you know, I know it's much more fun to shop for cute clothes, but people don't always need that. Maybe they need a diaper service. Maybe they need this. Maybe they need that. Like really thinking about, you know, it's not about always being there for the Disneyland pictures. So if you want to do that, show up, buy the diapers, do this, do that, you know? Now with my mom's mom, who is my, my grandmother, I never really had a close relationship with her. And she seemed fine by that. And my mom seems to be following suit almost where it's like Christmas and maybe one or two visits where her parents, my in-laws, are over maybe two times a day. Mm-hmm. So... Is there a, is, is, is that a, I'm going to get into some couples counseling? Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is it doesn't even seem like it's that big of a problem for my mom in her retirement years. She's almost like, this is my life. Whereas yeah. I couldn't fathom wanting to see, not see a grandchild if I was to have one. So should I make it a problem, even if it's seemingly not a problem for my mom or should I just let it? Because I feel like it would be beneficial, but it doesn't seem like she's pressing the issue. So there's not really a no. ton of conflict here. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay. And, and I think that's also hard, too. I think especially for women, we're meant, you know, we should want to be mothers. We should want to mother forever. We should want to be grandmothers. We should. And it's like for some, listen, this is, and you guys know this, right? And this is the thing about parenting that no one talks about. You don't know if you even like being a parent until your child shows up. <laughs> you don't even know if you're any good at it, if you like it. You, and you, your kid is born with their own personality and their own identity. And the biggest life lesson that parents have to learn is you have to parent the child that you have, not the child that you want. You have to, you know, love and care for and make that child know, I love you who you are today, you know, at the whole, right? So I think it's really hard for, there are some people who become parents that maybe are like, this is not my doom. Like, I love my child. I, you know, I, I want to give them a good life. I want them to be happy and healthy, but once they're out of the house, I kind of don't want to be so involved. Like, I don't, I don't want that. And, and it is, it's, it's very different. I think if you're, and, and some, that's the other thing is that I, I feel like if your mom is someone who is like, I want to enjoy my life. I want to be in retirement. I don't want kids running around. That's great. I think it's the, what drives me crazy are the parents who are the grandparents who are like, you know, doing both. I'm never willing to do any of the work, but I'm mad at my kids for not doing like showing up more with the kids and that, that if there's not a problem, don't make it a problem. doesn't mean she doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that she doesn't love them, but every, just like with parents, like, just like parents have to decide after their child is 18, how much am I going to help my kid? How much am I going to support my kid? Right? It's different for everybody. Some parents will support their children forever and ever and ever. And some will be like 18 by. It's the same with the grandparents. Some will be like, yeah, I'll help you with your kids, you know, and build that relationship. And others are like, yeah, here's your card for Christmas. And mm-hmm. that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. And you have to accept it. You, you know, if you feel resentful and angry, 
it's just going to create, you know, hostility. You need to accept that this is the relationship that my mother wants to have with me, with the children. And that's, and I have to be okay with that. Yeah, it's tough. I'm almost embarrassed by it because I feel like I have the prototypical grandma idea in my mind. And if it's, and people ask the relationship, I almost don't even want to tell them because then I feel like people are going to judge my mom. Like she's a bad person because she's not mm -hmm. an involved grandmother. It's tricky. Yeah. 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 And, and that's unfortunately the judgment that we place. Right. And it's, we shouldn't. Yeah. It's a choice. Well, it's, and you know? that's the thing. It's, it's not fair to your mom to be judged. It's not fair to you or for anybody to put that weight on women after especially raising her own two children. And like you said, you guys lived with her until well into adulthood, right? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Maybe that's the reason. <laughs> that was still 30. Okay. Yeah. So she's, you know, she's got, gone above and beyond. She might just mm -hmm. be like, that's it. I'm done. And also some grandparents are great with babies and some are great when they're toddlers and some are great when they're older. Like, you know, I think that's also important to realize is some, some are just, wow, they're great with the baby stage, but once that kid can talk, they're, they're out, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's important as a grandparent, you get to choose. This is the first time that you get to decide, ah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. That's and, and it versus being a parent where you're, you, there are no choices. You're just doing it. Mm -hmm. It's just out. Yeah. And now when it comes to relationships like that, where, you know, you might have a family member where whether it's an in-law, uh, maybe a brother or a sister, like an aunt or, or an uncle, and maybe they are showing up and they are saying, hey, you know what? I'm willing to babysit for you guys right now. You guys go. You guys go for the night. You guys go for the weekend. Go for a couple hours, whatever it is. If I was put in that position... I would lose my shit because I wouldn't be able to have trust because I wouldn't have that foundational, like, I, I don't know how they are with my kid all the time. Mind you, like my kids are still very young. We have a three-year-old and an eight-month-old. So I am very protective of them in a sense. There's only like maybe like three people I would be comfortable babysitting mm -hmm. for any length of time. So how can you build that trust up when there is no foundation? I think it's just the same thing. And I, I, I'm with you. Like if I, I certainly did not leave my child home <laughs> with anybody that I did not know. And yeah, I, so I think it's just, yes, if they're showing up and you don't feel comfortable, you as the mother get to say, no, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. How about a couple hours? How about an hour? How about you hang out here and I'll be in the other room mm -hmm. and I'll take a shower and do a few things and you be here. I would just build up. And anybody that's not willing to build it up with you, then that's fine. They don't need to be, then they don't need to be taking care of your kid. So absolutely, you should feel, it, you know, you being away on some vacation and you feeling anxious the entire time is pointless. So yeah, I, I definitely think if you're, a, if you're a grandparent out there and you are thinking, I want to build a relationship with my grandchildren, then yeah, you can't, it's, it's got to start small. It's got to start with an afternoon and then maybe overnight and then maybe something bigger and bigger and bigger for sure. And, and also you also have the right to say, uh, I don't know if I completely trust, I trust you, but I don't trust your spouse. So not going to do it. And you just sort of very friendly and nicely say, no, you know, I, I would love to have you here. 
I want you to have a relationship with my children, but I'm not going to leave. Okay, Tess, I'm going to stop you right there because we have to tell people who we are supported by. We are supported by My Breast Friend. My Breast Friend is the number one choice of nursing pillow for millions of parents around the world who nurse their babies. I don't care how you spell breast, but My Breast Friend spells it B-R-E-S-T. And for more than 25 years, My Breast Friend's patented wraparound design has supported people in over 40 countries and thousands of birthing hospitals to support successful nursing. Lactation consultants around the world credit the pillow for helping parents achieve longer and more comfortable feeding cycles than they even thought possible. It's simply the best, most supportive choice for successful breastfeeding, and Shane and I can both attest to that. You can purchase My Breast Friend online at buybuybaby.com, target.com, walmart.com, babylist.com, and amazon.com. But we are also supported by... Mabel's Labels. Frustrated by their children's things getting lost, mixed up, and leaving home never to return, Julie Cole and three other mom friends knew they could do better than just scribbling their kids' names on masking tape. From there, the idea for a new product was born. The very best personalized waterproof name labels and tags that are equally cute and durable. Mabel's Labels is now an award-winning, market-leading company loved by moms and kids alike. And dads alike. And dad's like, sorry for leaving you out, Shane. No harm, no foul. (laughs) Lucy loves them because her labels are in the shape of hearts. Some have cherries, some have hedgehogs. They're all very cute. And she can sit down with me and help me kind of design them online. I also love the hedgehogs. They're so cute, right? And their line of products features baby bottle labels, allergy and medical alert products, sports labels, household labels, and seasonal items. And again, Shane and I love them because they are so durable. Laundry, dishwasher, and microwave safe, and they're 100% guaranteed. This is like the Ginsu knife of labels. Exactly. You get that reference? No, but I agree. It's the knife that goes through the penny. It's indestructible. Well, there you go. It's the Ginsu knife of labels. And head on over to mableslabels.ca to start creating your very own labels and use the promo code thisfamilytree15 for 15% off your order. They deliver internationally and offer free shipping in Canada and the U.S. Again, that is mableslabels.ca and thisfamilytree15 for 15% off your Ginsu knife of labels. Now, let's get back to our interview with Tess. So now I want to, unless Shane, you have another question about in-laws. No. I, okay. So I want <laughs> <laughs> full hour on it. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's fascinating no, it is, though, yeah. and it, it is an issue for so many people and so many of our listeners. But when it comes to your own parents now, right? So we had our first child just under three years ago, and when I became a mother, you know, my worldview changed. There are so many parts of me that I'm more in touch with and more in tune with that I didn't realize before. In so many ways, I feel so much closer to my own mother. Like throughout my whole pregnancy, I call her every day, bawling my eyes out, being like, oh my God, you sacrificed so much for me. And (laughs) I was a wreck. But now that I have my kids, I find that with my own mother, my patience wears thin really quick. Mm -hmm. And when she says something that contradicts, you know, my beliefs or how I feel things should be done... I'm, I can easily snap and I find that she's the same way with me. And mm-hmm. since like we have a very loving relationship, we chat all the time, but then when it comes to certain things with the kids, we can be very, you know, butting heads. Mm-hmm. So how do we go about repairing that? Is your mom aware of it? Have you ever talked to her about oh, this? Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a thing. So she's aware of it. <laughs> She's aware of it. So, and what does she, what does she say? What is her thought? Does she, is she's just also aware of it, but she doesn't know why it's happening? We, 
we always just end up saying, oh my God, we're just, we're both so stubborn or whatever it is. You know what I mean? And, uh, but we are very alike in that sense. And we both get offended quickly and we both Mm. get hurt by each other quickly. Only Uh, with each other though, because I find them both to be very patient people, but mm. they have a short trigger with each other. Mm -hmm. And really since I think I've become a mother and again, this is something that so many girlfriends of mine, so many other women I know go through with their own mothers. It's kind of like what they went through when they were teenagers, but Mm -hmm. in, you know, realizing their own independence and autonomy for the first time, it's Mm -hmm. like that, but in parenting. Yes. And do you feel like you're patient with your mom, impatient with your mom when it's a are these fights usually around stuff with the kids and the parenting, like direct parenting issues, or is it ever about other things? Any suggestion if her mom's like, I would put a little onion in there. It's like, mom, no. Okay. I'm doing it this way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And so, and you've, you've kind of, you know, seen sort of, this is why it's happening. Right. Which Mm -hmm. is, and, and we are, we're hardest on family members. We're hardest on people and the people we love because we know they love us and we can be, right? We're much nicer to people that, you know, where the relationship feels very tenuous, like, oh, is this going to work or not? So parent, you know, when you snapping at parents and when you, you know, when your parent snap it, snaps at you, it's like the first thing you have to recognize is that it, it does come from a good place. It's that they feel comfortable. They feel comfortable enough feeling like they can, they can not always be perfect and around you, though I'm not saying it makes it okay. So I would really start with, I mean, a good thing would be is the two of you to really sit down and talk out and say, you know, what is it about it that's really bothering you? Because there's something about her making the suggestion that's bothering you. Is it, I don't want these kinds of suggestions, you know, I really would prefer that you don't make these suggestions at all. Would I, you know, would you rather have her say, hey, can I, can I give you a suggestion? Do you want her to ask you permission? Like, hey, would you like some feedback? You know, hey, would you like this? Hey, would you like that? I mean, do you want her to ask you first? Is it the tone? Is it like really figuring out what is it about this that is, that is bothering me? And the two of you sitting down and figuring out, okay, so what, it's really about what each of you needs to change. So if, it, if the thing with your mom is it's just suggestion after suggestion after suggestion, it's a little bit of like, I, I need you to be more mindful about how many suggestions you're giving to me in an hour, you know? And so what she has to work on is figuring out like, you know, how do I stop doing this? What do I do differently? Why do I feel this great need to give all these suggestions? What's, there's always this underlying reason. There's there's something there. My guess would be that maybe your mom feels like she wants to feel like she's a part of it and she's helping yeah. or that she feels like she's, you know, there's a reason why she's sitting there. And if she doesn't suggest onions, then what's the point of me sitting here? You know, that, that kind of thing. So I would really, I would start by that. If you feel like, okay, that's a little too much for my mom. My mom's not going to sit down and have this like in-depth conversation about our feelings. Then you can change the dynamic and it's really around, okay, I'm going to make a conscious effort when my mother comes over today. Anytime she makes a suggestion, I'm going to, before I say anything, I'm just going to take a deep breath. And my response is going to be, that's a good idea. Or no, I don't think so. Like some of it is also on you. If you recognize that this is a pattern and a problem, it's about you figuring out like, 
okay, what's happening here that Mm -hmm. this is, that this is happening. And if it's like, well, my mom needs to feel like she's doing things at our house. She needs to feel like there's more of a purpose for her. Then give her stuff to do. Like, you know, she needs a purpose when you come over. Well, then start thinking about a list of things like, mom, can you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? Keep her occupied over there. And maybe she won't feel so put upon all the time or not put upon, sorry, that she won't feel so um, like her voice isn't heard or she's not doing anything, whatever that is. Yeah, I would, I would start there, but I, and I think that for you, it's about, okay, so if you're impatient and snapping, that means that you're probably overtired and maybe not doing enough for you or having enough you time that the onions are bothering you. So, (laughs) so it's you thinking, okay, what do I need to change? Mm -hmm. Like, what do I need to do differently? What do I need to um, do for myself that I haven't been doing? I think that's an important one too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if it's because you're so similar too. I find if I'm around someone even at a party and if they look and act like me, I don't like them for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, geez. But, uh, I, and I just want to touch too, like yeah. my mom is the most loving person. Everything, She's like you. Yeah. Well, everything has yeah. the best intention. So she says the onions because she knows it'll make it better. Even if mm. I, you know what I mean? Like she just knows it'll be better. And she's just always looking out, but yeah. Good mom. Uh, But just to pivot completely on another Mm -hmm. topic, happiness is something that I'm thinking about often. Uh, Yesterday I was having a conversation with a friend and he had a goal to pay off his mortgage before he was 40 and he lives in Mm -hmm. Toronto. So that's no easy, easy task. And he did it. And he said, I'm not happy. He thought it would make, (laughs) thought it would make him happy. And me, I'm like, if that was me, I would be so happy. I would feel like my rest of my life is set. Mm -hmm. So what is happiness? Is there a way to get there? And why when we reach goals that we think are going to make us happy, why aren't we always? Good question. Yeah. Well, it that, I mean, because the thing is, is that happiness, I always tell people like happiness, passion, excitement, that's fleeting. That it isn't about trying to find happiness. It's trying to find meaning. It's trying to find things that make, you know, get us excited to get up in the morning. It's about finding things that inspire us and excite us on a daily basis. And I think a lot of times what we end up doing, we all do this. When I lose 20 pounds, I'll be happy. When I get married, I'll be happy. When I have a baby, I'll be happy, right? We live in a society where we are constantly looking for the next thing. And people put a lot of pressure, right? You get engaged when you're going to get married, you get married when you're going to have babies, like when you're going to have baby too, right? So we are constantly, constantly, constantly in a world where we feel like we need to be that achievement equals happiness, that we should be doing and achieving and being better than everybody else. And that will make us happy. And it doesn't because what we're doing is we're, we're delaying a feeling that we need to get in touch with today for an event in the future. So, right. Like if you say, I'm so miserable today, I'm paying off this mortgage. I'm so miserable. I'm so unhappy. I, I hate the fact that, you know, I feel like I'm deprived of everything because I'm spending all this money on this mortgage. If you, if he's been feeling low, low, low and thinking, but once I get there, I'll be happy. Right. You can see already he's, he's, you're not going to, your, your attitude and your feelings and all this stuff is not going to switch overnight, right? That's really important. And happiness and the way we think is, again, it's an investment and it's time and attention for ourselves. 
we tend to think in terms of, because we're, we're, we essentially still have cave person DNA. We're flight, flight, freeze. We, um, and so we are always, we're designed to look for the negative. We're designed to look for what, what could go wrong? What's bad? What's this, right? That's our negative. This is just ingrained in us. And they've done research on this about, you know, the neurons. I'm not a, a brain, <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not a neuropsychiatrist or anything like that. So I'm going to use the wrong words for things. But, you know, we are the neurons in our brains that when we think negative thoughts, they multiply, right? And, and we have, we're already designed to think negatively, to look and see all the dangers. So we have to, on a, con- on a daily basis, consciously learn how to think differently to think more positively, to think more hopefully. It's not toxic positivity, because that's a different thing. Toxic po- positivity is, oh, look at the bright side of things, or oh, what, right, dismissing people's feelings, pretending that what you feel isn't real, all of that. It's not about that. It's really about waking up in the morning and saying, you know, instead of saying to yourself first thing, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. Oh, it's going to be such a long day. This is going to be so hellish. Oh God. Like instead of coming from this place of not enough, not, you know, things are bad to wake up in the morning and be like, this day can be whatever I want it to be. You know, I'm here. I'm happy. I'm healthy. I, you know, I have a home. I, you know, it's, it's, I'm here, I'm present and I love what I do. I love my children. Like really you can consciously make the choice to not think about the misery and, and all the things that are going wrong. So your friend, I mean, I think that he, he, he put all of his eggs in this one thing and you can't, you can't put everything in one thing. One thing isn't going to make you happy or change things for you. It's, it's what you do on a daily basis. And it's about learning how to be happy now to be happy with whatever size you are. I'm perpetually trying to lose 30 pounds, like whatever size you are, whatever, um, you know, however much money you make, however, whatever your situation is, it's really about, you know, thinking about, okay, this is today and this day can be whatever it can be. I have enough, I am enough, and I'm going to focus on that. And, and to continue, it doesn't mean that you don't work towards goals, but it's about, thinking about for your friend, you paid off his mortgage, you know, yeah, of course that's, it's great. But what is he, you know, he has a couple extra, whatever he's paying 2000, 5,000, whatever it is a month, but that's really, it's not going to change his happiness level. If he's can, if he's been miserable this whole time, we all know $5,000 isn't going to change it. You know, but maybe every month five thousand dollars for like yes. you know <laughs> that, might, that might make me happy. But- yeah, and, and but it but again, it's really what he you know what he does with it and what he thinks about it. We True. see this with people, and we've we've seen these studies. I I do believe I think money obviously can bring you a certain amount of happiness. It brings a lot of comfort. It brings ease. It brings certain things for sure. And I think everybody would pick wealth over <laughs> over poverty for sure. But we've seen this time and again with people who inherit lots of wealth or win the lottery. They're not so happy because there's no, they're not building anything. There's no purpose for things. People have to have meaning, purpose, drive, and it has to be something that we're doing every single day. I think it sounds like with your friend, like he had a focus, you know, and his focus was this thing. And then he's like, oh, I've, I've achieved it. And so 
yeah, there is this real letdown. Yeah. So nothing, there is no mountain. There is no nothing. There's no anything that you're going to climb. That is the answer. It's like when we go on vacation, we think, oh my God, you know, if I'm able to go on this vacation, I'll be so happy. And we get there and we're like, oh, well, this is nice. This is, this is good. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, there is nothing. It's really about your life and how you see the world is what's in your head. Mm -hmm. It's how you choose to think about things. That's it. That's across the board. You have the control in your life to decide how you're going to think about things. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's everything. It's funny about the vacation. I am exactly like that. And then I'll get home. And I'll be like, that vacation was amazing. I just wish I was back there. <laughs> but at the moment, how come I didn't appreciate it that way? And I'm also like that with an accomplishment. If I get any minor accomplishment in my mind, it's going to be more life-changing or seismic. Mm-hmm. Now, and, it, and, it, and it's never as big or as life-changing as I, as I want it to be or as I hope or as I'm going to be perceived a different way. Now, you were in Oprah's magazine. I believe it's called O Magazine. You were featured in that magazine. <laughs> yeah. Did well, you... I was quoted in an article, but yeah. Still amazing, yeah, that's right? that's incredible. Now, now, when something like that happens, are you like, I've made it? Or, or, or <laughs> like, because that's how I get. <laughs> no, I, no I, I understand that when I, I, you know, I, I write articles for CNBC, you know, that definitely writing for CNBC has been, cha- you know, like not, it's changed. It's been, you know, people pay more attention to me all of that kind of thing. But yeah, I have that same thing where I think, oh, this is it. Like, this is the program. This is the thing. This is it. This is, you know, this is my career. And the more I get into it and the, you know, I've been working for 25 years now and I used to work in entertainment. And, you know, when I saw these actors that the media would call overnight successes who have been working for 10 years, you know, I saw that with them, which is yes, things can happen to you that are overnight, that, that feel overnight to the world, but it's not overnight to you. You've been slogging away mm-hmm. doing this. And yes, it's great to get attention and success and, and all of these pieces. But I noticed even with them, it was like, it's still work. It's still a grind. It's still the pressure. It's still got to show up and this money could dry up and, and all of those things. So that's why I'm saying like, Yes, have accomplishment, have goals. It felt great when I finally got licensed, but it was sort of like, okay, then I went back and I went out to breakfast and that was it. Like, okay, <laughs> now I'm, you know, back in my life and I have this new goal and accomplishment. So what I would also urge you to do too is it's good for you to write these things down of the things that you've accomplished, remember, and, and take a moment and think, you know what? Wow, I did all these things. Like, that's pretty amazing in my life. Again, we see this for other people all the time. I have friends that will grab me and say, wait, hold on a second, Tess. Like, you've done this and now you're doing this and now you're doing, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's right. That is, that is a lot. Okay. <laughs> but in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, you know, this person has this or they're doing this, right? It's the constant thing. Yeah. So it's really about anytime you get into that headspace, it's about stop, stop. Let me focus on what I've accomplished, how and and praise myself mm-hmm. yeah. and really, you know, uh, feel good about what I've done. 
and recognize as you look back, you're like, yeah, I have a lot of accomplishments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as you're saying that, I'm <laughs> thinking of all the things and it, it is making me feel better. But it's interesting yeah. that still nothing feels better than the first time I was on the front page of The Spectator 20 years ago. <laughs> and it's like the drugs don't work the same anymore. Like with each accomplishment, it's felt a yeah. little less good, even though the accomplishments have the stakes have gained. It's just an interesting yeah. mentality. Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. Well, and some of it is a bit of because I think that that's the first moment, the first like, aha, like yeah. people are paying attention, especially if you're doing something for a while and you feel like, does anyone care? I'm just putting this stuff out there. And so finally, you're like, oh, someone cares like that. That first glimpse of it is really obviously very exciting. But mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything else in life. The firsts are always like, woohoo, you know, because it's never a feeling you had before. So it feels really big and exciting. Yeah. Like the first sure. baby. Yeah. With this one, everything's just so much more relaxed. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. but Tess, we could, this has been a wonderful conversation. And I am so grateful for you sitting down with us today. If listeners, folks want to go and check you out, see your projects, where can they do that? Um, they can, they can go to my website. It's just tessbrigham.com, tessbrighamcoaching.com. I have a blog, lots of great information. I have this quarter life crisis handbook. It's completely free. You can pick that. I have a course called find your path. If you're interested in taking that, it's all of, it's been the past 10 years of everything that I have gained and learned from working with young adults and I've packaged it all together and it's there for you. So, you know, it's therapy and coaching all in one, but I am also on Instagram. So I'm Tess underscore Brigham on Instagram. So follow me there. I give lots of great um, information, tips, tricks, tools, all that kind of stuff. That's amazing. Absolutely. And really, I, I can't believe that it's been an hour because it seems yeah. like this conversation has been 15 <laughs> minutes. I know. <laughs> I didn't ask any of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, but truly, Tess, thank you so much for oh, sitting down welcome. with us today. We really appreciate it. And enjoy Absolutely. the rest of your Anytime. week. Yeah. Right. Nice meeting you. you. you Bye, Tess. Take care. Bye. <sighs> Tess. I had a phone full of questions that I had lined up to ask her and I don't think I got to any one because the more she spoke and again she was just such a wealth of knowledge I just I kept having new questions pop in my head and then I, I looked at my phone after and I was like oh damn it like I still had all these things but I was just so fascinated by the conversation we we're having and by what we were learning from her sometimes I just go in naked metaphorically speaking and I like to see <laughs> what's gonna happen <laughs> What? I like that metaphor. Going in naked? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I was going to say something else, and I was like, ah, oh, that's ableist, so I didn't say it. Well, there you go. Because I'm learning to be a better man. And that's the best we all can do, isn't it? Yeah. One day I will be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Only when you're dead will you ever be perfect. What? Alex? Yeah. Shane, nobody can be perfect ever. And, I mean, everybody's so happy to throw stones, but... I here's the thing if you we live are in a just, glass house yeah everybody does and if people, people in those houses shouldn't throw but yeah. if people are working and trying every day harder to be better and to be better yeah like i don't know good speech alex but now we're at a very exciting part my favorite part it's the listener mailbag segment alex gets questions alex researches and she adds her own opinions mixed in with that and then i add my two cents if it's called for all right well let's start it off with a banger question number one is shane planning on getting a vasectomy now that your family is complete shane 
Well, you know I'm worried about one of the children getting hurt in some sort of terrible accident and us needing my reserves. So not right now. Why don't we just put some on ice? What is the holdup? Okay, we'll put them on ice. And then when COVID-19 is over, I'll get a vasectomy. I'm just very scared. All right. So do you know exactly the vasectomy procedure? Yeah, they just come up with a pair of hedge clippers, I presume. And- okay, so I, I've... I've written this down because I wasn't exactly sure how they did it myself. So a vasectomy is minor surgery to block sperm from reaching the semen that is ejaculated from the penis. So that we kind of already knew. Yeah. So semen still exists, but it has no sperm in it. After a vasectomy, the testes still make sperm, but they're soaked up by the body. I don't exactly know how that works, but that's what I found online. I have a question for you. Would you prefer after I got a vasectomy that the semen didn't exist? Shane, I don't. I'm agnostic towards it. Okay, I don't care. But when I say I'm agnostic, you get on me. <laughs> okay. All right. Now I've heard everything. So another stat: more than five hundred thousand men in the U.S. choose vasectomy every year for birth control. And I was looking into what actually a vasectomy entailed, what you'd have to go through, because I know that you are such a baby when it comes to even needles and procedures. So. Your doctor can perform your vasectomy, apparently, and it's a routine procedure that only takes 30 minutes and in their office. I, I don't know 30 if this minutes is... seems long. Only 30 minutes? <laughs> He's just down there with, like, tweezers and stuff. <laughs> 30 minutes oh. is nothing. Have you ever tried doing a plank? Babe, have, have you... Have you ever tried doing a plank? Planking. We, that's so different from getting a vasectomy. Just answer the question. Have you done yes. a plank? Yes. One minute. How long does one minute planking feel like? Yeah, but you're not like using all of your body to like hold a rigid position. There's a guy down there with a scalpel poking at your. There, okay, penis. well here's the thing. I wrote down the two types of vasectomies: conventional vasectomy and the non-scalpel. <laughs> I'm gonna do an unconventional vasectomy okay, today, listen, Shane. Listen, all right, yeah, pulls so, out a blowtorch. <laughs> Shane, all right. So the conventional vasectomy. For this type of vasectomy, your doctor makes cuts in your scrotum to reach two tubes. I'll read it in my happiest two voice. <laughs> I'm gonna read it in a happy voice so that you hopefully don't get turned off here. Am I supposed to get turned on? No, but you're supposed to get excited about getting a vasectomy. Each tube is called a vas deferens, and you have one for each testicle. You knew that, right? I know that you're still learning about the female anatomy. I did. You think I knew there was vas deferens? I knew there. (laughs) It sounds like the guy from High School Musical. Shane, I knew there was a vas deferens. Zach Efron. Like, I know those parts. Well, that's weird to me. Why is it weird to you? I paid attention during health class. Oh, we never went over Zaf Defron's. <laughs> here. All right, we got to talk about the school system you're involved in. It's public. All right, so you have one for each testicle. Your doctor might remove a small piece of each tube and leave a short gap between the two ends. And then they what do you might. You mean, might? Well, I don't know. Maybe there's He's different ways. playing it by ear. I might, I might not. That's, for, that's then a surprise for you. They might sear each end. Why but might? yes or no's this is what i got but they will tie each one off with a stitch oh they will they're definitely gonna do that (laughs) everything else is up in the air i guess maybe some doctors prefer to sear and some prefer to (laughs) stitch i like the preferences i'm more of a sear man i'm a stitcher through and through uh so your dog (laughs) Okay. I like the smell of burning testes. Ignore my language for a second. Your doctor may be able to do both with one cut, or they may have to make a second cut. You might get stitches. (laughs) 
you might get stitches that dissolve over time as the cuts close. When each fat severance has been cut, sperm can no longer reach your semen or leave your body. And now we have the no scalpel vasectomy, which might be more appealing to you. Okay. So the doctor... <laughs> it just sounds... It sounds so unpleasant, and I don't want you to get scared away. The doctor feels for each vast deference under your scrotum and uses a clamp to hold it in place. They'll make a tiny hole in your skin, stretch it open, and lift each vast deference out. A tiny hole in my skin? That doesn't seem very medical language. What website was this on? E-bombs world? Wouldn't it be called a tiny incision? Who calls it a tiny hole? Well, no, because it's a little hole. and That's then what an stretch- incision is. But there's, I guess... I don't know. Maybe it's just for the layperson. And then, uh, anyhow, Shane, they'll cut it, then seal it with either searing, stitches, or both. If you have a doctor who can't decide what they prefer. Mm. Anyhow, at this point, do you think you would prefer the conventional or the non-scalpel? I'm going to have to go to different websites than you were on and, <laughs> and watch maybe a YouTube video with a calming voice. That was weird. It seemed like there's too much iffy business going on down there. Well, I, I guess because they could choose to sear or stitch, which is just the iffiness, right? What yeah. would you prefer? Would you prefer to have your ends seared or stitched? I don't know what medium the rare or well is. done. I get it, Alex. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what sensation I would prefer. I'd need maybe if I could get a little like sample on it, my hand or something. Well, I'm imagining like they'd have to do something so you don't feel it, right? Adidas recently hired a female model with hairy armpits, and reviews were mixed. What do you think? So, Shane, I'm going to show you the ad. Okay, so here is the ad. It is a woman in a sports bra with her hands over her head and hairy armpits. So, I mean, I, I'm cool with it. I think having body hair is a personal choice. I don't, I don't think the picture even looks weird. Like looking at it, it's just. I think I just scroll right by it in a sense but maybe that's also because i follow people who are body hair enthusiasts like i follow several women who grow Mm. their body hair and so i i don't even really take a second look so yeah i'm a subscriber to several female body hair websites so perfect (laughs) (laughs) no uh i i dislike it heavily you I'm kidding, <laughs> Alex. I'm kidding. I I wanted to see one your reaction if I was a female body hair enthusiast, and then the other reaction if I didn't like it. Both were equally disgusted. So, what's the middle ground here? I think it's fine, and I have no preference. Much in the same way you don't care how I'm castrated or whatever it is. <laughs> I, I I don't care what a woman does with her armpits. Like I don't I don't know. My sister wasn't overly groomed growing up and like you know she'd have mustache and a unibrow and i didn't think anything of it i wasn't like you're gross or anything you know well and you've been living with a woman during a pandemic and what during a woman. quarantine who you know i'm not best friends with the razor anymore i don't know you always are wearing armpit covering <laughs> i think the only time i show my armpits off is when i do shave them which is like once every two weeks now it's it's like pretty wild all right so body hair not a thing and neither one of us are really bothered by it yeah i don't like let, let me see your armpits right now actually let's see if she's living up to this that's not hairy Come, you think that's hairy i just shaved for the first time in two weeks like three days ago so this is like three days no oh, maybe that's not hairy. maybe three or four days growth yeah that's nothing well before i shaved it you should have seen it it was like two weeks well, next time, show me. I will. I get proud. Next question. If you could give advice to your younger self, what would it be? 
So I'll start. Okay. I would tell myself to stop worrying so much. I think I worried a lot about what other people around me thought of me, like especially other girls um, and other like guys. You know, Mm -hmm. I wanted everybody to like me. I wanted guys to find me attractive. And I think that if I shed all of those expectations, the confidence that I have now in my life, I think I would have felt earlier on, you know? Yeah. What about you? Probably don't buy those smokes for mom. Uh, (laughs) No, but seriously, smoking is terrible. If you are smoking, I, I think everyone should quit. We were on my mom growing up about smoking. And my sister would put no smoking signs up all over the house. And we actually got her to quit. Uh... But I, I feel like it was too late. When you know? when did she quit? I think when she was in her early 40s. Mm. Then she had a brief stint back where she did it again. And then she quit for good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think I would be, I guess, you know, the way you're actually asking is something realistic. I don't think a six-year-old can dissuade a grown woman. So I will say, yeah, that everything's, you're going to kiss a woman, I would say. And I say woman because you're not going to be kissing a girl because you're going to be older. So and it's why, going to why, be are you, okay. why are you telling yourself this? Right before first grade, I was like, mommy, I'm so scared. She's like, why? I go, I feel like I'm never going to have a job or a girlfriend or learn how to drive a car. And she goes, yes, you will, Shane. You will. Everyone does. <laughs> and she assured me that I definitely would be able to have a job, a girlfriend, and a car, and all that. <laughs> and I never learned to drive, really, to this day. I have my license, but I still don't really know how to drive well. I didn't have a girlfriend until I was 18. And what was the other thing? Have a job? Yeah. yeah. I was petrified to have a job. And I was forced into being a, a bagger at a grocery store when I was 15. And they wouldn't, they didn't trust me enough to take me off bags, bagging <laughs> groceries. Normally, the guy's bagging groceries for three months, then they move them to the freezer section. I was doing that for three years. Oh my I was, gosh, I became the best bagger and buggy boy of all time. Now. I believe it. But wait, I have a question. How old were you when you had your first kiss? My first real kiss, I was almost 19. 19, your first kiss. Yes. Is that not like a movie? No, that's the, the Tragically Hip song. Don't tell me who Shane no. has been kissing. No, Isn't I don't know. it like 24 years old, never kissed a girl? <laughs> Maybe it's a B-side. I don't know oh, if that's wait, one of their hits. Wait, wait, I want to get this proper. 24, never kissed a girl. <laughs> what a loser Shane Cunningham is. The well. lyrics are, he's 38 years old, never kissed a girl. So that was kind of like you, except 19. Which is still old. How old was this person again? 38. 38. That's way different. That's 20 years difference. Yeah, but still 19 is pretty late. Kudos to you. That's pretty amazing. Why? Well. I'm not saying I wasn't trying. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like. I was going to say you had great self-control. See, you always look at it like you really held out. No, it's different if you're a really attractive young woman than if you're a really unattractive (laughs) young man. The people aren't knocking down your door. My heart goes to you, babe. All right, next question. How do you keep yourself from losing patience with your kids? So I got some information from Heidi Murkoff, who wrote the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, and I found this on whattoexpect.com. Former podcast Heidi Murkoff. 
former podcast guest Heidi Murkoff, a funny podcast guest too. Anyhow, she says, know your limits. It's often not just the toddler's whining that pushes you over the edge. It's the other stuff you have going on in your life too that makes you actually lose your cool in the end. So like deadlines at work, errands that you have, arguments with a friend or a spouse, and something has to give. And you know, when this happens, it's often your temper. So when you're feeling really stressed and I mean, every single parent knows that feeling, avoid additional triggers. So if you can try to identify your triggers, you know, before you go into a day and try to pick them out as they're happening and get yourself out of that situation, then that'll help. Uh, Next thing, she says, give yourself a timeout. If you feel like you're about to start losing your temper, take a deep breath and count to 10. Center yourself with a sip of tea or some sparkling water or step into another room as long as your kid is safe and take a moment to close your eyes or just like even simply stare out the window. It's amazing much more how in the zone you can get at this point. And even when doing something like the deep breaths, this is something you could include your kid in and help model for your kid while they're there. If you're both kind of getting wound up, you can start practicing. Okay, mommy or daddy needs to step back and take 10 deep breaths. And then your kid seeing you do that might realize that that might be a good coping mechanism for them as well. And then it's just something that you can do together when, you know, when tempers start flaring. Next is trying distraction. So if a battle of wills is about to begin, shift gears and try to make your kid laugh. Try to do something just totally different before you lose your cool or before your kid freaks out anymore. Sometimes a little kid's joke, a funny face, or your favorite song can totally work wonders with a kid and a parent who are about to explode. And I know a lot of couples that do this too. You know, right in the middle of the argument, something funny will happen or both people just kind of start laughing because just the absurdity of the arguments kind of catching up with you. Kids don't always have the wherewithal to stop themselves mid-argument and kind of find what's funny or realize that they're being absurd. So you as the parent might be able to try to instigate that right if you smile at lucy she'll smile usually if she's upset Mm, yeah exactly and lastly it's just be good to yourself because a parent who takes care of themselves can take better care of their family and that's obviously something shane and i talk about a lot so make sure that you're getting enough sleep exercising eating right and treat yourself like make sure that you're taking time to do whatever it is that relaxes you reading a book a nighttime back rub a nighttime back rub a date night a bubble bath because there's nothing like doing something fun doing something relaxing to help kind of recharge your batteries and give you the will and the patience to go on with the next day anything to add no it's just tonight yeah lucy for some reason she didn't want to go to bed she was being testy and i go what do you want to do and she was taken aback she's like i want to go downstairs i'm like okay let's go downstairs And we went downstairs and I said, okay, bye, I'm going to bed. She said, no. And I was like, you can do whatever you want downstairs, Lucy. I just have to go to bed. And then she just realized how much it sucks to get the option to do whatever you want to do. Then she said, I want to eat pizza, thinking, think, <laughs> thinking I'd say no. So I pulled out this huge slice of pizza and I just put it in her little hand. And then she got scared. She was like, I can't believe I'm allowed to do this. I don't even want to do it. She's like, no, this is too big, too big, just a little piece. And I gave her the littlest mini bite of pizza. And she just pretended to take a bite. She goes, I'm done. <laughs> and she's like, I want to go to bed now. 
And that was just it. So sometimes they're testing you to see if what they can do, and they don't actually want to do it. Well, and I think that goes in with just choosing your battles, right? When is it mm -hmm. worth it to keep saying no, keep saying no, and you know, having things be in a strict line, however you keep your house or whatever you're doing, and when can you actually kind of go with it and have a teachable moment? Agreed. What is the best gift you ever gave each other? So I think the best gift Shane gave me, so it's it's a tie, I think. It was either a like a day at this like beautiful spa for Mother's Day or Really? Shane, I had so much fun there. Like it was it was so much fun. I had the most relaxing time. I got that on like a Groupon or something. It was like... <laughs> It was so nice. It was so nice. Or honestly, uh the expensive loungewear you got me for my birthday and for Christmas. Because they're two things that I would never spend money on for myself. The loungewear especially. Like I could never justify paying that much money for a dress, let alone a dress that's like half pajamas. And they make me so wildly happy. Yeah, I'm glad you like the loungewear. What about your GD 30th birthday where you got the top of the Drake Devonshire? Oh, yeah. He, Shane, I was going to bring up experiences, but... You brought up a, a, the first thing was my Groupon spa. That is an no, experience. that we did together. But then I was considering that as like something that we just like did more together. <laughs> So you don't look at the top no, do, of the I world's do. best hotel as a gift solely for you? Like, yeah, I got to experience it, but come on. There's no way in H I would just go on a trip like that and no. spend that money. Okay, okay. I don't want to force you into saying what your best <laughs> no. is, but that is shocking. I thought once that happened, I was like, oh, she's always going to think this is the best. No, that was my favorite birthday ever. That was so much fun. Like, it was the best. What was the best gift I ever got you? Oh, best gift. You've gotten me so many great gifts. This Christmas, every gift was like a home run. But just to say a unique gift would be my Iverson shoes. Mm. I love Allen Iverson. I think he has the best basketball shoes in the world. They are insanely hard to find and very expensive. And Alex got them for me. I mean, we were cooped up in isolation all year. So we decided to live a little and spend a little bit more money than we would typically. And those shoes make me feel good every time I look at them. <laughs> I'm happy. Like, I just love having them. Good. No, I'm so glad. And I like you wearing them because you usually put them on for date nights. Yeah. And I love that because it's just like a fancy streetwear vibe that's like still comfy and cozy. And uh, yeah. I feel like I'm a millionaire when I wear them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's see. Last question. If you were to play a song you love right now, what would you play? So I'll start. So for me, just because just the vibe and just because I, I feel like I'd want something mellow and just happy to a degree mm -hmm. i might play lost in the light by bahamas i, I was thinking that that's so funny <laughs> i swear i swear on everything i was just gonna grab my phone and play lost in the light that's yeah well we need to then the second this pot is over but it's just that perfect vibe it's the perfect energy it makes me feel a little bit inspired it makes me feel happy if you guys don't know that song go listen to it right now lost in the light by bahamas it's just a beautiful nice little song what else is good? Oh, and I know you love this song too. Crimson and Clover. Oh, I, I feel my like gosh. that would be a good vibe song. Yes. And often, Lost in the Light and Crimson and Clover are on the same playlist together when we make playlists because that's the vibe we're going for, you know? Yeah. No, great, great picks. Well, I know what we're doing now, babe. Playing songs? Yeah. Are, are we done the episode? Yeah. Okay, everyone. 
thank you so much if you could take the time and leave a review i'd appreciate it uh but yeah thank you so much for listening to this This family Family tree Tree Podcast. podcast episode 78